So everyone's journey is different. The belts are not that important. Sometimes it competitively it becomes like a little bit of an obstacle because like dudes are weird and they'll say things like, oh, I'm not doing a super fight against that blue belt. And it's like, that's fine, man. He'll, you know, you'll fight that guy eventually. But oftentimes what we see, especially in no gi, is that the belts don't matter that much in competition. As long as you're winning, that's what matters. And so we view competition through a lens completely separate from the belts. We view skill and a lens completely separate from the belts. And we view knowledge as a lens to see the belts through. Welcome to Forever White Belt, the podcast that dives deep into the world of jiu-jitsu and brings you the stories of incredible practitioners and coaches. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, we have 10th Planet Black Belt, Sean Applegate, a highly respected instructor under the tutelage of Eddie Bravo and Brandon McCaffrey. Sean is the head instructor of the first 10th Planet program in Georgia, located in Stryker Fight Center. Known as Trapplegate, Sean is a master of the concepts of jiu-jitsu and has the exceptional ability to convey them in a comprehensible way. Sean's dedication to his team is unparalleled, spending hours in the gym before matches, discussing strategy, and refining techniques. I've been on a quiet mission of looking for the next John Danaher's out there, not as a replacement, but as an example of deep-thinking, results-based coaching individuals. And Sean definitely has a spot on that list. In this episode, we delve into Sean's journey, his experiences, and the invaluable insights he has gained throughout his years of training. Whether you're a passionate practitioner seeking to improve your skills or a coach eager to enhance your teaching methods, this is an episode that you can't afford to miss. And with that, I give you Sean Applegate. Sean, welcome to the show, man. Hey, man, what's going on? I've heard your name for years and years and years, and I don't know why I didn't do a deep dive into the world of Applegate, you know, the Applegate universe. And uh, the last person that I just talked to kept bringing you up, kept bringing you up, and I made a mental note. I got to talk to Sean. And that was uh, Irish Keith, Keith Cavanaugh. Oh, yeah. yeah, man, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I love Keith, man. So that's that's awesome to hear. Can you walk us your journey in terms of like uh, the beginning jujitsu and the whole thing? Uh, I do see that you're a black belt under Eddie, though, right? Eddie Bravo. Correct. It's kind of like, uh, so, so yeah, I'll tell the story and then explain that part. But uh, basically, like, I was doing, like, karate. I had watched some UFC, and Machida was the man at the time, and he was doing karate. And I was like, bro, I don't know what he's doing, but I'm trying to do that thing. You know what I'm saying? It looks dope. So a uh, buddy of mine was like, yeah, we should, there's this karate place. They have jujitsu and karate and all these things. And uh, he was going there, but it was too far from my house. And I was like, I don't know. So I started doing some karate. And then I went to Decatur, and there was this used to be this show called like martial arts masters or something like that in like the eighties. And there was like the dragon and the wolf and all these characters, but they were people, they were, they were, wasn't a cartoon or anything. And, um, this guy, well, the dragon and the wolf both have schools there in that area in Decatur, uh, Alabama area. One's in like Coleman, I think. But anyway, so I was in Decatur and I'm like, Oh, check out this karate school, man. Sounds dope. Whatever. So I go in there and then, then, you know, Brandon is there. Like they were going to have an Eddie Bravo seminar at some point in the near future. So I was like, I'm going to go check that out too. So I go there and, uh, needless to say, like I roll with Brandon and he just, he's a blue belt at the time. He just destroys me. And I'm thinking to myself, like, man, these are like some, 
like tricks I can learn and then I can go back to the beach. I'm originally from Gulf Shores, Alabama, which is an island at the bottom of Alabama. So it's like a beach essentially, uh, beach town. So so I was, I'm going to go home and I'm going to go to the beach and I'm going to do these tricks to my boys. I'm going to tap them out and be like, bro, I bet I could tap you out, fool, whatever, and tap these guys out. And then they're going to, you know, it's going to be cool. And then what I learned really quickly from rolling around with Brandon was that even if I knew exactly what he was going to try to do to me, I couldn't stop him. So they weren't tricks. They weren't uh, like little things, you know, it was real. So I immediately was like, all right, I got to learn jujitsu. This is insane. Uh, you know, as we all do when we first are introduced to jujitsu, we didn't know what jujitsu was at all prior to that. It's like your world just changed. You're like, wait, I could be in a street fight with somebody and they could be doing this to me. Oh, I could die in the street. I could die in the street for sure. So uh, no guns, no knives. I could die in the street. So it felt like superpower. So I, I go and I look out. I look for jujitsu in Gulf Shores. There's one school it's whatever Brazilian jiu-jitsu I go in and they're all in geese right and so remember my first introduction is like I'm at this Eddie Bravo seminar with Brandon Tid Planet so I go in and I see them in the geese and I came from like karate so in karate there are a bunch of weird styles of karate that are completely impractical and there are a few that are good and so when I saw the dudes in the uniforms grabbing the uniforms and doing the thing I thought to myself okay this is one of those impractical kinds of jujitsu like I was like this isn't the same thing and so I called Brandon and I was like yo I tried to find some jujitsu man I, there was a jujitsu school but there was also a Japanese jujitsu school in town so this is another reason why I had that idea in my head that there was like all these types of jujitsu that might not be realistic you know I knew what I had done with brandon was real because like he jacked me up you know what i'm saying so i was like all right all right dope so i go in this geese school and i'm like nah this ain't it so i dip i call him and brandon's like nah man those are the normal guys we're the weirdos and i was like bro what like <laughs> so it was i was completely backwards and i was like okay well maybe i'll give it another shot went back to the geese school the owner and the instructor was a little weird he was doing some weird things that i didn't really like and i like to think that like i have like a semi-okay radar for like weird stuff you know like beyond like personality quirks like oh i saw this guy i saw this guy smack one of the kids moms on the butt when they came in and then his wife walked in 10 minutes later and he gave her a kiss and i was like bro what's happening you see what i'm saying like weird stuff and then uh yeah like six months later this guy goes to jail for like some kind of weird sexual thing so anyway that did happen so yeah he was gone so now there's no jujitsu actually no jujitsu and a childhood friend of mine said hey dude i'm at this mma gym i know we had talked about jujitsu you should come and train with me and i was like yeah you know what that sounds fun dude that sounds great so i go i mean gold shorts is not a lot to do like i said it's an island we can go surfing skateboarding otherwise you're just probably hanging out at bars and doing uh, you know stuff like that so i was like man i'm in so i go we start training. They have a jujitsu coach there. He's got a really ambiguous rank story. <laughs> as I don't want to say most, as some MMA gyms seem to have. And uh, he's like, yeah, man, you know, I'm like a yellow belt in Japanese jujitsu, but I tap black belts all the time and all this stuff. And I was like, cool, man, whatever. So I roll with him and I did some stuff off the internet and I tapped him. And I was like, okay, this guy's off. This isn't real. And then like four or five weeks later, this guy gets fired from the MMA gym. Does just like weird stuff you know whatever gets fired and so i'm like all right man i don't know what to do and i'm fully invested at this point i've been training like a month you know how it goes you get addicted i'm fully invested bro so i'm talking to brandon i'm like i don't know what i should do bro he talks to eddie and they're like all right this guy that owns the mma gym says hey man you should be the jujitsu coach now and i'm like there's no way anyway i'm like bro i have no idea so i talked to brandon i'm like this guy wants me to be the coach i know i don't know anything bro you know i don't know what to do I just like to train. There's nowhere else to train. I don't know what to do. And Brandon and Eddie were like, you know what, dude? Go there. Study. Get the website. Get Eddie's website. Get all the books, the DVDs. Study, study, study. And share with them everything that you're working on. Don't try to be like the coach or like the man. Just like 
share with them what you're doing. Like it's a club or something. You so know? be honest, basically. Yeah, just be honest with them, you know, and, and just be like, look, man, we all just want to train. We all just want to get better. Treat this like a club. You know, we're all equal here. And I was like, cool, no problem. I can totally do that. That is not a difficult thing to do. And so I go in and I do that. And, you know, of course, then Brandon's like, you should be competing as much as possible to try to get better. And then Brandon was like, I'll come down every other month and do a seminar. And I was like, cool, great. And then on the months you don't come, maybe I can come up to Decatur for a weekend and roll around and and learn from you. And he's like, yeah. So for about the first year, I did that. I competed as much as I could. And I went up there and he came to me. And after a year, he gave me my blue belt. And I was like, great. I'm a blue belt. You know what I mean? And then he was like, you should come out to LA with me. And I had already gone out to LA to train with Eddie at least once before this. And he was like, there's this new tournament series called the Gracie tournament series. And they're doing the submission only rule set and they're doing Gracie worlds. And I'm going to go out for Gracie worlds and you should come with me and compete. And I was like, great, no problem. So I went out to Gracie worlds as a blue belt. Now listen, Gracie tournaments had the most gangster rule set in jujitsu of all time. And what I mean by that is it was submission only. Okay. 10 minute rounds. If you were in any round except the finals and there was not a submission, both players were disqualified. So the only way to win that tournament was to submit everyone they put in front of you. And then the finals was no time limit. I watched DJ Jackson and Orlando Sanchez go 45 minutes, bro. It was crazy. But at that time, you got to understand, like, bro, I showed up to that tournament, a blue belt. And, dude, I met, like, first time I ever went to Gracie Worlds, I met, like, uh, Horian Gracie was there. Curtis Siander was there competing. Keenan Cornelius as a purple belt was there competing. DJ Jackson, Orlando Sanchez, all these guys before jujitsu had really blown up in the in like our own little media. Yeah, so it was it was pretty crazy for me. And then I and then I the first year I went as a blue belt. I'd been a blue belt for a couple months. I won and uh, I submitted everyone that they put in front of me. And Eddie came to my school a few months later and did a seminar and was like, "All right, man, that's it." gave me a purple belt and he was like you're an official 10th planet affiliate now and i was like i've been training a year and eight months i should not be a purple belt and i should not have my own school for sure now is this in gulf shores where is this that's where it was it was in gulf shores Alabama. okay, okay. Know, in a shed in a warehouse in the middle of a field oh yeah you, you know no <laughs> ac like not wow. even fully like sealed off from the outside so i had already built like sort of this student base if you could call it that but the vibe was hey man we're just here together even once i was a blue belt even once i was a purple belt it's like i'm the coach but we're here together working this stuff together whatever you know what i mean there was never like a am the man like type deal and so those guys stayed with me they're still with me um, so you got a ride or die crew there cor- correct okay. man I, I just gave my first six black belts in december and four of those black belts were there in the warehouse when I got my purple belt. So that's when I got my ring from Eddie. I got purple from Eddie, brown from Eddie. And then when I got my black belt, Eddie came for a seminar to 10th Planet Gulf Shores. And Brandon was there. And Brandon gave the speech and handed me the black belt. And then I took the picture with Eddie and Brandon. And so it's like, regardless of whether Brandon gave me the black belt or not, I'm still a black belt under Eddie technically because like that's the lineage. But also like Brandon played a huge, huge, huge part in that. So... I don't really know like how all of that works. I didn't train with Brandon day in and day out, but he was my mentor. He was my first positive male role model in my life. He's always taken really good care of me and looked out for me and stuff. So yeah, I'm a black belt under Brandon. I'm also a black belt under Eddie. And you're kind of self-taught, it sounds like. Correct, yeah. As was Brandon as well. Like so it's yeah. yeah. True. 
you spend inordinate amount of time studying, researching. Are you doing a lot of like individual study too, like with your own team members or students, whatever, however you want to refer to them? Are you studying their individual film? I, I mean, are you just watching them? Are you giving them individual feedback or? I study everything. So let me, let me say this. I look at everything. So when matches happen, when tournaments happen, when large tournaments, and I, I don't, I, obviously not like IBJJF where there's hundreds of matches, but I mean like ADCC. I watch it all. I went to ADCC, you know, I was in PJ's corner. So I got to go like down there. I watched everything. The matches I missed, I went back and watched on video. When people put out videos, when people put out instructionals that come from reliable sources, I watch through them. When people talk about things on the internet, I watch through it as much as I can. My own guys, when they have matches, we talk immediately after the match about things that happened. When they have matches with high-level people, we study the high-level people. On Sundays, we get together at my house and we do tape studies. What kind of tape studies? So it depends on what we're looking at, right? So like sometimes I'll just tell the guys, like, why don't you guys pick some matches you're particularly interested in and we'll break them down. Sometimes I'm telling them something. Sometimes I'm saying like, all right, I want you guys to understand what happens when we do body locks above the waist. Okay, so we're going to go pick out these eight matches where body lock above the waist happened in a jujitsu context. And we're going to look at the result and why things happen the way that they happened. And then it's like, you know, sometimes it'll be like, we're going to look at stances. So we're going to say like, here are the best outside guard passers and here are their stances. And we're going to look at 10 matches from each guy and we're going to go through those matches and we're going to figure out why they're standing that way and which way they're turning if only to figure out holes in their game to attack them through but also to learn you know offensively as well things that they're doing so you know it's it's themed it's different you know what i mean as any study would be you know if you were going to study mechanics you could study the way that a tire works or the way that you know an engine is very different from a tire and things like that so same thing uh, same idea. So I study a ton of jujitsu. I study their jujitsu. I coach them every day in the room. So I teach for an hour. We do one technique. We drill that technique for an hour. And then we roll for an hour. We do five minute rounds with no break in between. So you move from person to person for an hour doing fives. And so I'll watch them. I have a couple of days a week that I try to like dedicate to my own training. So like I'll roll, but that's mostly with like black belts that come to the school regularly that don't compete. So it's like, I'm not taking away from their competitive training and things of that nature. And then I, of course I roll with the guys in the gym as well, but, uh, but that's the way that I tailor the training and I coach them during training. I watch them roll. We talk about it. Yeah. Like I study everything. I study their matches. I study their opponents' matches. They study matches. It's oftentimes, even about the time someone gets the purple belt, the purple belts will come to me with holes in their opponents' games. One of my purple belts just fought a local black belt. It's a very competitive local black belt from a Henzo affiliate. And um, he was like, yeah, man, he passes on the outside, but he always leaves his hands out so his shoulders are in front of his hips. I think I'm going to use this strategy to take advantage of him. And so we refined a couple of simple techniques that come from that position and then he went and he tapped that dude in under three minutes with uh the exact strategy that he had game planned we were literally at some mma fights where i was cornering some mma fighters from our gym in the back he came to the fights to come to the back and we spent our time in the back while the fighters were in between fights drilling the techniques for his match which was the next day wow <laughs> Yeah. Talk about maximizing time. Well, a lot of the uh, tape study then, too, it, it sounds very organic. It doesn't sound like sort of a planned. It sounds like you have a general, as you mentioned, sort of theme maybe or a concept, and then you guys sort of go jazz from there sort of, right? And you just sort of 
iterate and learn or whatever it may be. Like either you're pointing out a deficiency or you're looking for deficiencies. Yeah, correct. And then my big goal with that, with the tape study with them, because I'm going to tape study anyway, my goal with them was to teach them to tape study. My goal with them was to teach them to watch people's matches so mm. that they can pick out the deficiencies in people's games right. and so that they can also learn basic ways to answer their own problems, mm. you know? So you're empowering them. That's smart. One of the things you mentioned was this notion, and you touched on it already, was cornering. And you mentioned this, I, I believe, in one of your videos. Uh, can you can you touch on the effective corner and the efficient corner? And um, how do you coach someone to remain calm and not get frustrated? Competing is an inherently frustrating and terrifying thing for most people. And the reason for it is because it's a solo activity. We go out in front of everyone and we have to grapple with this person that we've most likely never grappled with before. And it's truth. It's truth in the way that they're going to go as hard as they can and try to win. And I'm expected to do the same. So if I lose, it's because he was better than me. Not because... Oh, well, it was just this role in the gym. I was tired. I wasn't going that hard. It, it just it peels all the little layers of nonsense back, peels it back, and it just gives us the raw, like, here's where we are. And so people get nervous. They have anxiety. They freak out. And one of the things that happens a lot in jiu-jitsu currently, and I think it's going to go away. I'm seeing it more and more. It used to be that I was the only person not doing this thing at the tournament. And I thought I was weird, but now it's becoming more prevalent. And, and people have told me over the years, obviously, this is something you get praised for. So it's like, okay, I think this is a good thing. So basically, when I was competing, if someone was yelling, it would freak me out. If my coach sounded worried, then I was worried. If my coach was super confident, then it was almost like, damn, maybe there's something I don't see here. And so I just was like, well, I don't want to yell at my guys. They're already nervous enough. They're already freaked out enough. And one of the things your competitors will always say to you if they lose is, man, I'm sorry, coach. Like, I'm sorry, guys. Like, I let you guys down. And you're just like, no, you literally didn't. No one cares if you win or lose except you. Nobody does. I don't care. If you lose a match, there's no sign that pops up that says Sean Applegate failed. It's just you losing a match. It's just you. And they always think that. They always think like, man, I'm representing the school. I'm representing you, man. You know, and as I become more notable, it's gotten worse because they feel like there's some kind of like extra thing there too, you know, where it's like, oh, well, people, you know, say this and that about the gym and about you. And, I, and it's like, no, man, no, you can lose a thousand times and I can, I'll be right there in your corner every time you lose and I won't care and I won't be mad at you. And no one else is going to be mad at you. No one, no one cares at all. And so there's this almost emotional attachment to it, right? And so one of the things that happens in your voice when you start getting like frustrated or like desperate in the corner is they start to feel like you're getting mad at them. They start to feel like you are disappointed in them. And I've seen coaches get up and throw stuff down and walk away, you know? And it's like, I, I understand that you're frustrated, dude. I understand that you are better than what your student just did. We all understand that. No one thought the Naga Beginner Division white belt from your gym was the representation of the entirety of your jujitsu. Actually, no one cared anything about it. So, you know, don't freak out. The only damage that you do, because most other people don't even think twice about it. Like, I've seen it happen and then talk to the other coach that didn't freak out. And I'm like, damn, that was crazy. That guy got up and, like, stormed off. And the other guy's like, oh, did he? Oh, that's crazy. They didn't even notice. And it's like the only person you're hurting is your athlete. That's the only person you hurt when you do that. And so that is efficient coaching because efficient coaching is going to be coaching that I can give you that doesn't affect you emotionally. It doesn't tear you down in the match. It doesn't distract you from the goal. The coaching I give you needs to keep you on track. If you're my student, then I know what you look like when you compete because I've been there coaching you. That's what I do. 
You know, I go to the Nagas. I go to all the little tournaments that I can. And so it's like, I know what you look like when you start freaking out. And when you start freaking out, it's like, hey, listen, calm down. Take a deep breath. You're fine. Don't worry about it. You're good. And that is more important than move your left arm. Move your left arm right now. Wait, you got to move your left arm. That just sounds frantic and weird. And it freaks them out because they are losing and they're bottom of mount and some dude's about to arm bar them. But when you're nice and you're calm, you say, hey, it's fine. He's going to take your left arm now. Don't worry about it. Breathe. When he takes the arm, we're going to turn our hips this way. We're going to build up. When you talk that way to them, they're like, well, maybe maybe he sees something. Maybe this arm bar is not so dangerous. Maybe I'm good. You know what I mean? And that makes a huge, huge, huge difference. So that's the efficiency of coaching. The effectiveness of coaching just comes down to your own knowledge of the sport. So like if you don't have a good knowledge of the sport, then effectively coaching people is going to be outside of your grasp. Like you're not going to know what you're looking at. So when someone goes to do a certain kind of pass, and so this is one of the things that happens to people I think that's unfortunate, is as they get more skilled people into their room in their gym, and those skilled people compete at higher levels, eventually they end up at a level where all the people that their guys are competing against know more and are capable of more than they are in the sport. And then you can't coach your guys anymore because now you're telling them, he wants to do a knee cut, and that guy was never going to do a knee cut. He's doing some other pass that you've never seen that you're unfamiliar with because maybe you haven't been studying or maybe you haven't been doing that. So emotional connection with your students is how you become an efficient coach, understanding the emotions they're going through when they're out there and watching them and trying to communicate with body language. That's how you become an efficient coach. And an effective coach is you get through study learning the meta, understanding what these guys want to do and how they want to do it so that you can tell your students efficiently and effectively how to navigate those waters when they end up in those waters eventually. So I think that's the efficient and effective coach model is studying enough jujitsu to know and working with your students enough to know. So I'm getting clubbed a whole bunch. I'm competing. Oh man, I'm, I'm getting really, you know, I'm losing it. Some guy's passing on me. Every time he's passing on me, he's, you know, throwing that knee somewhere I don't want to be. You see your guy starting to lose composure. How do you deal? So yeah, in that moment when they start losing composure, the number one thing, like I'm literally just going to be like, hey man, relax. You're not done. He's not submitting you here. Nice and easy. You know what I mean? And it depends on how they're reacting to it. Too. I want to hit this guy back or... Right, you know what I mean? right. If you... Yeah, if I can tell that you're like, you know, starting to dig on like a collar, a collar tie, hey man, we don't do that, okay? They do that. We don't do that. Stay calm. He's going to open his elbow. When he opens his elbow, that's your duck. That's your chance to move. And then you're like, oh, he's dumb for doing this. I'm going to take his back. You see what I'm saying? Then you get an idea, Right. Or in the passing scenario, it's like he keeps passing you. Hey, man, listen, you need to compose. You need to recompose. You need to get your knee elbow together. He's passing you on the outside. So now we're going to talk about how he's doing it. He's passing you on the outside. You need to get ready for your snap. Or if he's passing you on the inside, we need a knee elbow on the inside. Get rid of his knee. And then right whenever we get back together, bro, now we're going to attack. So when we get that knee elbow together, we're going to bring our leg over the top and attack. Or when we snap him, we're going to put him in the front headlock. Now we're going to attack. So it's like, calm down. You're fine. Here's your path out of the bad spot. Here's your path back to offense. Let's make this happen. So give you a small goal, and then we move forward. Just a reminder to please give us a five-star review on Apple Music and Spotify and become a VIP member for only 99 cents a month. Get ad-free episodes at anchor.fm forward slash forever white belt forward slash subscribe. And check us out on Instagram at forever white belt show. Go buy your forever white belt swag at teespring, T-E-E spring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt. Check us out on YouTube now at Forever White Belt. Finally, if you ever get to beautiful Northern California, 
please come roll with us at North Bay Jiu-Jitsu in Marin County, just north of San Francisco. They're amazing instructors and everyone there are great people. Mention the podcast and get two weeks free. Can you give me an example of positions you won't use, but you study and why? So reverse Delahiva is mm. one. Wow. Yeah, really, really used to be really popular. And I think that was whenever it was mostly just a bunch of gi guys trying to do no gi. So reverse Delahiva is an incredible tool for gi grappling. So is regular Delahiva. In no gi jiu-jitsu, it's like basically a giant sign that says, please break my leg. Please just break it right now. I'm ready to get out of here. When you play guard, giving someone the inside position is one of the worst things you can do. Because the idea of passing the guard is that I'm going to separate my opponent's knees and elbows, and I'm going to put my body in the space between his knees and elbows, and I'm going to pin his shoulders and hips to the mat. That's what I'm going to do. If you allow them to step inside, you've already given them real estate that you didn't have to give them. It's the equivalent of playing chess and sacrificing pieces immediately as soon as the game starts. Like, I can't wait for him to take this pawn right here. Just take this pawn. I don't want any more. Just take it so I can start playing my game. When in reality, we can just play right to the inside, right off the rip, and this guy's going to be a hundred times more frustrated than he would be if I just gave him the inside space right away where he's comfortable, right? And so I, we study the reverse Delahiva because it's so prevalent, because there's this remnant like game floating out there. It's not very, it's not very prevalent at the highest level anymore, but building into it, like at the mid, medium level of professional jujitsu, going into the highest level. It's very prevalent, and it's just like this sort of game that's left over from the days of Hafa Mendez and the Meows and the people that were doing it. And we study it, and we study to pass it, and we study to attack it because when our opponents choose to play those guards, it should be very easy for us to, to go ahead and get the win right there. And we know that they're going to be doing it. Deep half is another one. Deep half and no gi is not so great. It's a great way to get submitted. And uh, like we study the deep half, and we study countering the deep half. And so, you know, I like to say that we study everything. There's a lot of funky jujitsu out there we'll probably never look into. Those are some positions right off the top of my head that we study closely that I don't think anyone in our gym actually plays offensively at all. That's interesting that you say some of these positions work up to a certain level. I was talking to Keith about this, too, and this notion of, I don't know, what some people could call uh, false positives. Do you feel these are sort of false positives, I guess, within the context of high-level no-gi jujitsu? I, I don't, okay, so I agree with what you're saying right now. I agree with the idea of false positives. Hmm. I don't think that those games are prevalent in the sport because of false positives. I think those games are prevalent in the sport because of actual positive reinforcement because people like Meows and Hafa, they did that at the highest level and had wild amounts of success. I think the reason that, that's why they're so prevalent because there are guys out there who haven't studied jujitsu in a decade and they're just teaching the same jujitsu that worked 10 years ago competitively. I think that is why we're seeing it. I think that the reason it's not so great at the highest level is because jujitsu evolves. And that game was very strong when it was new. Like, remember the Barambolo when it was new? When the Barambolo was new, it was like, if you don't know the Barambolo, you're done. But now it's like, bro, the Barambolo is. Who's doing the Barambolo? You know what I'm saying? Like, and it's not because the Barambolo was never a good move. It was an amazing, it's, a, it's an amazing move. It just has some very easy counters. It's interesting because it's, it's sort of the, the notion of the arms race, right? How leg attacks were, you were essentially dead if anyone was sort of attacking your legs. And then I remember just 
pretty recently too, within the last few years, whatever, talking to some high level competitors too, saying, you know, one of the prediction was leg defense will evolve to an elite level as well. Where are we within that arms race as well? I mean, we're, we're very close. I mean, bro, it's very difficult to leg lock high level players. It's very, very difficult. It was difficult when it was prevalent. It was difficult back then. It's even more difficult now. So if you're, it's interesting. I did a podcast with a guy who's like an up and coming guy, up and coming, uh, aspiring professional. And he was winning some, some entry level professional stuff, like some purple belt brackets and stuff. And he was like locking everyone. And this question came up while we were both on the podcast. And he was like, yeah, I think all the best guys have a huge hole in their game when it comes to leg locks. And I was like, I don't know, man, been at that level for a very long time. I've rolled with a lot of the top guys have my guys compete against a lot of top level guys and uh, I can tell you right now like most guys if they're at the very highest level of the sport have an incredible level of leg lock defense the guys who didn't got weeded out a long time ago there have always been guys at the highest level of the sport that were good leg lockers Dean Lister was at the highest level of the sport great leg locker how many guys in the IBJJF are fantastic ankle lock or knee bar guys or toe hold guys so many so many god dang leg locking is not new man it just it just got innovated is all just heel hooking essentially got innovated and uh i think a lot of people out there their academies just weren't allowing leg locks so it felt like leg locks came out of left field when in reality i mean you can go back and look at videos of dean lister heel hooking hadolfo vera adcc like 2013 or something like that you know what i'm saying and he's in the 411 and it's an inside heel hook and it's nice and pretty and he's bridging into the knee and it's like and people are like that didn't exist back then no it did it definitely did so I think that the sport is doing great in regards to the innovation and assimilation of leg defense and offense. I think that most high-level competitors have a great level of leg lock defense, and the ones that don't, don't win much at the highest levels. It all seems to be just part of the game now. In fact, it yeah. is. I talked to some people. I know Keith as well. Going, I should get paid every time I'm saying Keith now that I'm <laughs> mentioning him. He was mentioning, you know, I'll, that's what I was doing. I felt like a god. All I was doing was leg locking people. And then when I finally met someone who could defend it, then I was, you know, it was over. And mm-hmm. then even teaching it, he's like, I got just so sick of teaching leg lock, leg lock, leg lock. And I talked to a lot of pros now that are saying, you know, I just want to get back to passing again and smashing and, you know, that type of thing of just going back to that. But obviously it's a game of upper body lower body alternating attacks alternating defenses yeah you have to be proficient if you're not proficient at attacking the upper and the lower body your game just is going to stagnate and there are a lot of guard passes guard retention tactics and things like that that you just won't be privy to because you're not attacking the legs at all and you're not defending the legs if you're not attacking them because that means the people around you probably aren't doing it either so it's like well yeah you do have to have that it's a part of the game permanently now and for those people that just chose not to assimilate it in the last decade or so well good luck you know what I'm saying? Like, because it's a big part of it now. You know what I'm saying? It'd be like, I don't really like triangles, so I'm not going to do triangles. <laughs> right, right. And it's right, like, right. well, good luck doing jujitsu then, because triangles happen. It was already a tremendous amount to learn without the leg system. And now that we have these, the whole thing encompassed is in the 360, you know, you take the day one white belt and it sounds like you're not doing a curriculum Please correct me if I'm speaking out of turn here, but how are you making a path for these people to sort of get an aggregate of what jiu-jitsu is? Jiu-jitsu is built off of a core set of principles. Um, this is something that gets tossed around a lot, but I feel like most people that say it still don't really... I don't want to say most people. Some people that say it probably don't really know what that means because they'll say things like concepts and principles, like they're interchangeable. 
or they're even remotely close to the same thing, which they're can, absolutely not. Can you specify the two, please? So a principle is a constant. A principle is something that, like, if you said this is a principle of driving a car, every moment that you drive a car, it's active. It's there, okay? So a good example of a principle of jiu-jitsu is weight distribution. Your weight is somewhere when you're grappling, somewhere. So it's a principle. Concepts are generally manipulations of those principles. So a concept could be like the concept of off-balancing your opponent, right? It's not a move. It's a concept. And that concept is a manipulation of weight distribution. So you could say, I want to make his left leg heavy. I distribute his weight into his left leg with this technique. It's a concept. So you have a, a set of principles that are always active. That's pretty. That's, there's not that many of them. You know, I've heard people say in the past, these 30 principles, there's definitely not 30. I mean, unless you're like breathing, breathing is a principle of jujitsu. Well, we, yeah, of course. Okay. Right. You know, things of that nature, uh, leverage is a principle, right? Things like that. So we can build on those principles and the way that we try to, a way I try to explain to my guys, especially when they're new is look, man, all of grappling is based on these principles. All of the concepts we use are manipulations of these principles and all of the techniques that we do are applications of this idea. They're applications of concepts based on principle. That's all they are. So if someone says, what do you do when someone pushes your chest right here? We start at the most principle answer. What's their goal? Okay, he's pushing my chest because he wants to move me. Great. I know what he wants to do. So weight distribution says if my weight's on the floor, my opponent's going to have a terrible time trying to move me. If my weight's on my opponent, my opponent's going to have a hard time moving himself, but moving me is relatively easy. If my weight's off of my opponent, moving himself is very easy, but moving me is tremendously difficult. So he's pushing my chest because he wants to move me. Weight distribution says, well, if he wants to move me, I should probably put my weight on the floor. So that's the base of what we're going to do now to answer this problem. What concept should we use? Should we use misdirection? Are you on top or are you on bottom? If I'm on bottom, I should use off balancing to give that hand a job so that he now has a weight distribution dilemma where he either takes his hand off and posts it on the floor to catch himself and keep from falling over, or he leaves his hand on my chest and falls in that direction and now falls over because he didn't base out. If I was on top, we would use a misdirection concept where we say, all right, he wants to push into my chest. I'll put my weight on the floor now so that he can no longer move me, and I will move one lever up. So if it's a hand on my chest, I'm going to go to the elbow, and I will move that limb side to side since it intends on pushing me forward and backwards so they would misdirect and then we would say and then you would get into like what people consider to be the little details of a technique so you would say like should i use a thumb up grip where on the elbow should i grab it should i turn my chest a little bit where should my head go those are the little details of a technique that people almost always obsess over when in reality the base of the technique was weight distribution and misdirection and so it's like when a white belt learns weight distribution and then learns concepts like misdirection now that white belt will in a role problem solve that position and ha answer that now maybe the application they use is something they just made up in the moment and it's complete garbage and it doesn't even really work well for them but then they have a base to build an application off of so now they have an idea and they go i tried to move his arm man and it kind of worked it didn't you know what could oh use your thumb on top of his elbow to drop his elbow a little bit so that when you scoop it you can move it out and over your shoulder and then you get the inside space yada yada and then we build on that do you see what i'm saying and so the applications that they learn in class are very easy to understand because by the time they're blue belts they have such a deep understanding of the principle and the concept behind them that they're just going i get all of this there's no mystery here i get all how all of this works at a foundational level you're just now i just got to figure out where to put my hands in my feet and things like that so they get it there's none of this like if you ask a, a white belt in the gym or a blue belt i should say because then they'd understand you say 
hey man, how does a sweep work? They're not going to give you this rehearsed answer like most black belts will give you where they say, a sweep is where you take away one corner of their base and put your hips under their hips and then turn them over the corner. They won't say that. They'll say, well, a sweep is a manipulation of weight distribution. So most of the time it's going to be like a Kazushi mechanic into a corner. And then they're going to say like, are you talking about this kind of sweep so is it a corner reversal is it a hip stack is it a fold is it a lift what is it you know what i'm saying like and those different motions and those different ideas are things that are driven into them from day one and i think that the most important thing is we have all levels classes we don't have separated classes like that a white belt a blue belt a purple belt a brown belt and a black belt are all learning the same jujitsu they're all learning the same application they're just asking different questions a white belt goes what is that white belts don't know what side control is they don't know what an arm bar is they go, what is that? You go, that's an arm bar. The blue belt goes, well, how do I do it? Like, well, you do it like this. The purple belt goes, why do you do it? And you go, why do we do it? Because he's pushing our chest from the mountain. We have to do an arm bar. We have to do something. He's going to shove us over. Okay. Brown belt goes, well, when do I do it? Well, right when he tries to off balance you in this direction, this is when we do it. And then the black belt goes, where do we do this? Because that black belt is considering all of the other options that happen in that position and how he can build a dilemma off of that. And he goes, well, where does this belong in relation to these techniques over here? And they can all learn the same move in the same class and all ask that same question and all grow that day without you needing to change what you're teaching to any of them as long as you begin with, here's the principle, here's the concept, here's the application. Simple as that. And you can teach people. And dude, I'll, dude, I'm telling you right now, like you'll watch some of these white belts. I have a white belt that's been training for seven months that's had like close to 10 super fights with blue belts. He's submitted every single one of them. He's winning tournaments left and right. He gives black belts terrible fits when they come through the gym. And he's not a star athlete. He was a fat kid that got skinny and got tall, essentially. I have a purple belt that submits black belts every weekend. Ryan Aiken is Ryan Aiken, honestly. Like he combat jiu-jitsu world champion so on and so forth and all of that comes from they're all training in the same room all of that comes from the same class the same instruction the same whatever and i've always done it that way i just understand more than i did six years ago or 10 years ago or whatever now you know what i mean like i just teach a better class now but i think that that's the model that's given me the most success i want to talk about um fallacies a little bit i, I think it's something that you've mentioned before and and if not you then someone did it's something about uh, like an arm bar from closed guard drills and swiveling the hips Type, that type of example, you know, and is there an equivalent example for the leg game that you've seen? I think that people overemphasize entries. I taught a lot of leg lock seminars, man. Most of the time they just want to see entries. Well, I could show you a bunch of entries, but if you don't play the requisite games that lead to those entries, they're not really going to mean much to you. I mean, and even if you do play the requisite game, this entry is not going to work on your training partners in two months from now because they're just entries, man. They're entries. They're not static controls, right? They're dynamic movements. They're simple. They're easy to figure out. They're easy to shut down. Like, it'd be like, show me your best takedown. Cool, man. I'll show you my best takedown. But you're not going to take everyone down with it. And like, your training partners aren't going to get taken down with it at all in two months. So people overemphasize entries because I think for a long time with leg locking, once someone got your leg, that was just it. People just didn't have good leg lock defense. Now, the most sophisticated leg entry means almost nothing because these guys have such incredible defense that the pin itself is more important than anything you do. The thing that I show people that blows their minds when we do leg locks is not an entry. It's a way to stop dudes from turning and hiding their heel or a way to dig their heel out when they do turn and hide it. That, those are the things that blow people's minds. Like, oh, it's so simple. It's a, Yeah, of course it is because this is what's going to make the difference. I retain always, I will always say, the difference between a great leg locker and a good leg locker is the ability to expose the foot. Exposing the heel or the foot or whatever attack you're doing 
to get to that moment where you can actually finish them, that is the mark of a great leg locker because the best guys in the world get their legs caught in entanglements. The absolute best guys in the world get caught in entanglements. But the best guys in the world don't get tapped with leg attacks. They don't. And that's the difference. And that's what, like, a guy like Eddie Cummings, probably the greatest leg locker we've ever seen in jiu-jitsu, that's what Eddie Cummings did to everyone that people never really noticed because leg locking was so foreign to most people when he was prevalent, he was in the sport and he was pushing it, that they missed the part where the reason he leg locks guys who are phenomenal leg lockers is not a setup, it's not a position, it's not some level of understanding and how he finishes the heel hook they don't have, it's the way that he exposes them once he collects their leg. Guys weren't getting out of Eddie's leg entanglements, they just weren't. That was the problem is that like guys like Gary and Gordon and guys like that, they entangle people left and right. They just get out over and over and over and over. And that wears you out. Eddie Cummings did not have that problem. Eddie Cummings was getting your leg and breaking your leg. And that was that. So I think the biggest problem, not problem, I guess fallacy and leg locking is that entries matter more than control. Well, you bring up Eddie Cummins, and he had such an emphasis on sort of the external heel versus like a Danaher philosophy can you talk about the two philosophies? And I'm simplifying, but I just want to hear your thoughts on it. Basically, from my understanding, and this is this is one of those times we were talking about earlier. This is one of those times I'm going to say some crazy stuff right here. I'm about to say <laughs> it, though. I'm going to say it, though. Danaher is an incredible jiu-jitsu coach. He's amazing. Probably the best, at least credentially, the best we've seen. However, Danaher very, very, very rarely gives credit to the people he draws his information from right like it's very rare for him to give that credit now if sometimes he'll say things like we're gonna use this technique because this technique is prevalent in ncaa world championship or, or national championship tournaments right and like we know that if it's happening there it's gonna it's gonna be good you know so he'll say things like that but he doesn't say things like i didn't believe in heel hooks until eddie cummings showed up and had changed the way I viewed finishing heel hooks, because that's a real thing. He didn't really believe in heel hooks until Eddie Cummings showed up. And so I think what you see between the two of them is when Eddie Cummings left, he took a lot of jujitsu with him. He did not share. There were some things, and I say that because I studied this guy like it was my job. It literally was my job, but I studied this guy, you know, like it's my job. You know what I'm saying? And I was a competitor who was riding that leg lock wave very heavily. And so I was like, man, and I was, t I was, I was like messaging him and talking to him and just like, I was always on Eddie all the time. He left jujitsu with so much technique that he never showed anyone. And I think when he left Danaher's, he left Danaher's just before he had that loss at EBI. When he got armbarred by Geo, he had just left. And when that happened, he did, Danaher was without now. He has no way to study. Because Eddie's not putting out any information. Eddie's not competing much. So after that loss, he didn't compete much. So he can't watch Eddie. Eddie's training at a whole different gym. So he can't get the information that way. So I think what Danaher did was he was just like, all right, cool. Eddie's gone. We're in an arms race to see who's going to release this material and capitalize on the momentum that we've created for the last couple of years, the DDS thing. And so that's when, right when Eddie left, that's when John and, and all those guys came out with all these DVDs and all this. Look, we're going to tell everybody. Dude, you used to not be able to go there. I went to Henzo, New York. I personally know Gordon and Gary and those guys, like, like on a very personal level, went to New York to train with them. And Denner was like, nah, you're 10th Planet guy, you compete, nah, you can't train with us, you're crazy. It was that secretive back then. It was, Eddie and Gary would travel together. You need to drill these moves while you guys travel. Don't let anyone watch you. 
type stuff, bro. It was crazy. It was like some Cold War level stuff going on with these guys for a little while. And then it turned into that thing. So I think Danaher drew a bunch of lines in the sand where he didn't really know what was going on in some of that those situations and was just like, ah, I don't know. Whereas Eddie could still keep going and growing. You'll notice that after he left, John Callistine, who kept training with Eddie, kept leg locking people in competition. Eddie was leg locking people in competition. But all of a sudden, the DDS guys just didn't really do leg locks that much anymore. It's like, what happened? How'd you, why'd you guys stop doing leg locks? And it was like, oh, outside helix don't really work anymore. Bro, I got way too much footage. Way too much footage. I, my guys are outside helix and people left and right. I got a whole DVD on the outside helix. Like, this move is great. And it's not, those aren't false positives. This is happening at the highest level of the sport and still working. And so I think the big difference between Eddie Cummings and John Danaher was in the leg lock game, Eddie Cummings was miles ahead of everyone and he didn't give everything to them. And they had to kind of, if we're going to still claim that we made all this up, we're going to need to like figure out what we're going to say when someone asks this question type thing. And I still like, I like Gordon, all those guys, you know, I, I have some of Danaher's guys that train at my gym. I have a purple belt, some guys like that. And, 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 and they're great. And we don't have politics in that way, but I was there for that wave. And I remember thinking to myself, like, man, Eddie left jujitsu with a whole lot of stuff that he didn't ever tell anybody. What I would give to just sit down with that guy, just be like, look, man, write a book. I'm right here. I'll do it for you. Just talk. Just talk, dude. I got you. Now, earlier you mentioned uh, Reverse De La Hiva and Baron Bolo and things that were very sort of gi-centric that were successful in the gi for a while. You could even say no gi for a little bit. And it begs the question, did you or have you studied gi competition? So yeah, I have definitely studied gi competition uh, just in regards to techniques that you couldn't see as often in nogi. So it's like, try to learn the Birambolo. Meows, not hitting it nogi the way they were hitting it in the gi, right? If these guys are the best guys at the Birambolo, and I use that loosely, I don't really know, but let's say they were. They definitely got the credit. Then why, what's the disconnect? What problems are they having with the nogi Birambolo? I don't understand. So I'm going to cross-reference now, right? Let's go look at the gi technique. So it looks like in the nogi... He spins under, but he can't get the guy's hips off the floor to expose his lower back. Why? And I go and I look at the gi. And when the first thing I notice when I look at the gi, and again, this is before people were teaching the Birambolo. This is like when the Birambolo was like top secret, like we're winning all of our tournaments with this. Oh, look, he's grabbing the belt. He's pulling the belt up to lever the hip off the ground. You can't do that, Nogi. You can't grab this guy's shorts and yank his butt off the floor and take his back. You can't do that. I get it. That's the disconnect. So now what we have to do is we have to find a way to lever the hips off the floor using the backs of the knees because that's the connection we have. You see, if we still if we go reaching for the hips, we lose connection to the legs and they start to get away, which is the problem the meows were having. So what we're going to do is we're going to double down on levering the knees and see if we can lever the knees to the side to expose the hips rather than up to expose the hips like the traditional Barambolo. And you start to find that you have some success there. And like, all right, great. So then we watch more and we say like, all right, here are some options that they're doing whenever the Barambolo fails in the gi. What are they doing when the Barambolo fails no gi? And you see, and it's like, okay, he's not doing anything. So he's missing everything. The guy's going back to neutral. What happens when he tries this move he was doing in the gi? And then we look at that grip and we look at the way he's doing it no gi. And we just cross-reference again. We do the same process. You see what I'm saying? And so, yeah, I've studied a bunch of gi in regards to techniques that I couldn't find specialists for in no gi. Or when I did find a specialist, he was not having success. And so it was like, let me see if I can find out why. And then you just go, yeah, you just go down a rabbit hole. And I've gone down 100 rabbit holes that didn't lead to anything. 
but I've gone down a few that led to some pretty big revelations for myself, you know, and some of my students. So, you know, it's those things. Those are the times I've studied gi. Can you tell me a time that you wanted to quit and why? <sighs> Dude, this is going to sound super corny, but I don't think I've ever wanted to quit, man. No, a lot of people you know? say that. A lot of people like, say like, that. Not in like a cheesy way, though. Not in like, I just love jujitsu so much. Not in a Marcelo Garcia, like nobody loves jujitsu more than me kind of way. There's just nothing else out there that has this much truth. What else is out there for you that has more truth than jujitsu? For you, it would be the Nike store, I heard. Right? <laughs> the Nike store is trash, bro. <laughs> the Nike store is Sean, trash. Sean had a temporary job, I think, at a Nike store or something like that, right? Or... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Way back that's back. a terrible, 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 terrible story. And uh, <laughs> it it did lead to me doing jujitsu full time. It did. I skipped that part in the previous uh, iteration of what how I got to where I'm at. But yeah, long story short, my grandmother died. They said, you know, you're faking this to get out of work. And it's like, oh, OK, man, cool. And then they moved my position to a position. I was in the back. I'm not a huge like I'm not a bubbly person this mm. right here is as bubbly as i get what right, we're dealing right. with right now this is right. me i'm on 10 right now right. so <laughs> this is it uh right. so so the problem was they, they i worked in the back and i did not work on the floor with people and then the week that i came back from my grandmother dying it was now you're going to work on the floor because the manager of the back wanted to get a friend of hers in the back and so on and all of the motivation was terrible and all the things that happened were terrible and now i got to talk to all these people who want help with all these things I don't know anything about while I'm grieving the closest family member in my family dying. She was the closest person I ever was with, you know, ever. And I just was overwhelmed by it all. And, uh, yeah, that's how I became someone who was doing jujitsu full-time because that was not for me. Hard left turn. <laughs> what makes a great student? Man, you know what? I think what makes a great student is somebody who knows why they're there. And that, I mean, that's the cap on it, right? It's like, it doesn't get any deeper than that. It's like, do you know why you're here? Like, do you, do you really know? And then it's like, you know, of course they have to be honest about it. It's like, sometimes they're not honest about why they're there. And you're like, okay. And I don't mean anything dangerous. I don't mean like anyone's there to learn how to kill people or anything. I just mean like, did you come here to make friends, bro? Is that what you came here for? That's cool. Like, if that's what you did, that's cool. You're going to make a lot of friends here. But like, I want to know why you're here so I can help you reach those small goals. Did you come here to lose weight? Okay, great. Yeah, please tell me that. Did you come here to meet a potential spouse? And some of those things are inherently problematic. If you came here to lose weight, that's problematic, right? Like, I know that people love to say jujitsu is great for that, and it is. You will lose weight doing jujitsu, but it is inherently problematic if you only came here to lose weight because you're not going to like people laying on you. You're going to hate that. You're not going to like my classes because they're wildly complex compared to the spin class at the local Planet Fitness. And I should probably be on you about making sure you do more rounds. And I should probably be on you about making sure you drink enough water. And I should probably be on you about like giving you diet tips and things like that that are very simple, nothing crazy, like let me be your nutritionist, but just small things like, hey man, if you cut out soda, it's gonna have an impact on your body weight, things like that. So it's like, I need to know those things because I don't want to sit with you for 20 minutes during class and watch you drill and give you direction after direction after direction if you don't care about getting good at jujitsu you just came there to lose 20 pounds because you're going to get annoyed by me you're going to think i'm the most annoying person ever because i'm just like no man you still don't have this down 
And you're just like, I don't care. When do we roll? And then like, oh, if you came here to meet a spouse, this one's inherently problematic because dating inside the gym leads to falling outs. Falling outs lead to people leaving the gym, leaving the gym with drama leads to people talking trash, yada, yada. It's like, please just be honest about that so that I can explain to you what's coming down the pipe for you if you date in the gym. I'm not going to, I can't tell you, you can't date. It's not like I can just show up where you're dating and be like, hey, what is this shit? You know what I'm saying? That doesn't work. But what I can tell you is I can warn you ahead of time and say like, hey, man, listen, here's the deal. If you guys date and it becomes a problem in the gym, I will have to ask one of not both of you to leave. Eventually that will be a thing. And that's really unfortunate, but that's where we're headed. Date if you want to. I hope it works out. I hope you get married and I hope you never have a bad day ever again. But uh, that's not very likely. So that's a big one. And then it's like, I want to be a world champion. But do you, though, if a student knows why they're there and they're honest about it? That's the single best student you'll ever have. And it doesn't matter if that student ever does anything competitive, whatever. You will have the biggest impact on that student if you can help them reach a goal that they know they want to reach. And they're honest about wanting to reach it. That guy that loses the 20 pounds is ecstatic. He lost the 20 pounds because that's the only reason he showed up. That guy that needed a social outlet has new friends and that's the only reason he came. That guy that actually wanted to be a world champion and shows up twice a day and kills himself in the gym every day when he finally has competitive success, you know what I'm saying? And then that also helps you to coach people because sometimes like in our gym, I don't even really know if I know exactly how to say this without sounding like kind of an asshole, but there's a lot of people in our gym that are very competitively driven and they're very successful in what they do. They win a lot. And it's like, Sometimes I'll notice that the more hobby driven people feel out of place and they're just like, man, I'm not going to compete. And I don't even know if I should be training with these guys that are like black belt, world-class black belts, because like, am I even giving them good training? Like, you know, and like, they just, they have all these doubts that you didn't put in their head. You know, you don't even have to say anything. You don't have to be like, Hey man, you need to get it together. You don't have to say anything. And they just, they build that right in their head. And if you know that someone is an inherently like hobby driven person, then you can say things to them along the way that encourage them. Like, hey man, listen, don't view this place as only invested in people who are going to become world-class competitors because this place is made up of people who want to become world-class competitors and people who want to help people become world-class competitors. Uh, so you're reframing it. Yeah, it's like you're one or the other, brother. Like, we need both. Because I was about to say, um, ask then, are you, and I, you know, I hate to reduce it to this, but maybe you're not that product. Maybe you're not the hobbyist product. Yeah, right. No, we're not. We're not. We're absolutely not. My gym is not. If you're a super hobby-driven dude and you want a really chill place where no one is ever going to really compete or go too hard or like, nah, man, we're not it, bro. It's like, a. It's honestly, it's the same thing it was whenever I was first starting out. It's a bunch of people in the room. I teach the classes because I know more than these guys and they tell you that. That's not just my own thing. And I tell them the same thing. I just teach the class because it's I'm the guy you guys want to teach the class. Like, I'm not a better person than any of you or any of these other things. I'm just here to help you guys get better at grappling today. And so that's the thing with those guys, too, is it's like, if you're a hobbyist, bro, and, and, and you just don't, you don't care about the super detailed instruction, you don't care about the long waits to get your belts here, because there is a tremendous uh, wait to get your belts, and just things like that then it's just not the place. I mean, I had a guy once who was a black belt. He was a bigger guy. He was probably like late 30s, early 40s. Really cool guy. Everyone loved him. And I want to say he was fond of everyone, but he was trained in the mornings. We have four morning classes a week. He was trained in the mornings and he was like, listen, man, I don't think I can keep training here, dude. He's like, these classes are killing me. He's like, I train twice a week with you guys and my body's wrecked all week. And I'm like, 
I can see the problem from the outside and I can see the fix from the outside, but I don't think it's worth even discussing. It's like you're, you're going way too hard because you're a black belt. You're rolling every round because you're a black belt. You're not okay with sitting out while the underbelts are rolling because you're trying to set an example as a black belt. You're trying to be a black belt, like what you think a black belt is, which is commendable. It's awesome. Like you're a great, he's a great dude, you know? And it's like, unfortunately, you're 38 and most of the guys you're training with in the morning are 20. And those 20-year-old dudes can show up that morning, that night, the next morning, the next night, the next morning, the next And they can just keep doing that forever. And they'll never feel a tenth of as bad physically as you do after two days of that. And so your own sort of idea, like you're having this existential crisis as a black belt, because not only are they tapping you, because they're running the meta, competitive meta in jiu-jitsu right now, and it's something you've just never seen, but it's also that you feel like they're outworking you. So you feel like a less, you feel less than as a person. And while none of that is relevant and none of us see you as that thing and we all love you, I get it. And he went and he trained at another school and we have, a, I have a great relationship with him still. I love that dude to death. And uh, he's a huge supporter of our team and our school and stuff, comes by and does things for us. He's amazing. But it was like such a hard conversation. I could tell on him. It almost looked like he was thinking he was quitting or something, you know? And I was like, brother, listen, this school is not for everybody. And it's not a thing where we're better than the people that don't train here. It's a thing where if you have a very specific set of goals, this is the place you should be. And we know that. Yeah, I always refer to it as a product. You're just yeah, a, diff you're a different product. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yep. you're a different, different makeup vehicle. You know, <laughs> 1,000%. So my ideal student, right, is a student who's very honest about what he does. But sometimes that involves me going... You know what, brother? And I've done this a lot, actually. You know what, dude? I think you would be much happier at this place over here. Sure. If you're a middle-aged guy and you're swinging a hammer all day, you got a wife and kid, and then you leave work at the end of the day to come to your academy and put in five-minute rounds for an hour straight, good luck. Yeah, and they don't have to roll those rounds. They can sit out and stuff, but that's where it gets them. That's where it gets their heart. You know what I'm saying? It's not a broken leg or a broken arm or a broken back. It's a broken heart at the end of the night, and they go home, and they're just like, oh. Because we have 40-something-year-old dudes in there that are black belts that work manual labor jobs that still compete, and they're still gangsters. You know what I'm saying? And it's just like, that guy doesn't make it any easier for him because he's doing the thing. You know what I mean? So I'm going to bring up the belt thing because you said you got your blue belt in a year. You got your purple belt pretty quickly, yet you belt very slow, it sounds like. Is there a bit of a disconnect there? Yeah, so one of the big problems I saw in getting belted too quickly was my own belief in myself. So you felt that you did get belted too quickly? I didn't think I got belted too quickly through their perspective. So I never doubted Eddie or Brandon. Like I believed in and them I a thousand percent. I don't mean to question them at all, too. I'm no, just, no, no, no. I'm just I'm bringing being, the, the example yeah. of what your place is now and what you know, your yeah, path. Yeah, no, no, no. No, I'm just super candid. Like, this is exactly the way I see it. Like, I didn't ever doubt them. I trusted them. I believed that what they said was true. Like, oh, you're a blue belt. Okay. I know I'm a blue belt because I beat blue belts in competition regularly. Oh, you're a purple belt. You just won the Gracie Worlds tournament. You submitted all these blue belts. You're a purple belt. You know, okay, great, whatever. The problem that I had was that I didn't understand what those belts meant. And it, it couldn't only mean that you just can submit people that are at that rank. Belts cannot be relative to skill. They can't be. Because if they were, then a D1 college athlete should be a black belt on his first day of jujitsu. As long as he's 
able to, you know, pin a black belt for 10 straight minutes. You know what I mean? Right. They're subjective, right? Exactly. Yeah, they are. They are. They are. So it's like, okay, my problem was I felt very unconfident in what I thought I knew of a belt. And I was being told, okay, now you're going to be giving out belts, essentially. You know what I mean? And it's like, I don't, dude, I've been a blue belt for eight months. Now I'm a purple belt. I don't know what a blue belt is, dude. I don't know what that means. I'm not comfortable with that. You know what I mean? Because I love jujitsu and I love what I do. And these people are investing as much energy and time into training with me and trusting me to give them that blue belt that I did with Eddie and Brandon, if not more, because I was disconnected from them. So it's just like I wasn't comfortable. And so at my at my school now that I've been removed from those things and I'm a black belt and I've been a black belt for several years and I can look at them and see the way that things go. I feel like I, I spent a number of years trying to quantify. All right. This is what a white belt is. This is what a blue belt is. This is what a purple belt is. And really just do that and what i have noticed from coaching for so long and teaching for so long is are those belts have very specific questions that come up all the time a white belt is about exposure a white belt is about seeing jujitsu if there's a position if you're a blue belt and there's a position common position on the mat and someone goes what is that thing and you don't know what it is i don't think that that's a blue belt so a blue belt then is learning how to do all those things so if there's a basic technique in jiu-jitsu, and when I say basic technique in jiu-jitsu, I mean like, you know, what is side control? What is the closed guard? What is an arm bar? If there are techniques like that that a purple belt doesn't know how to do, then you're still a blue belt. There's no way. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't care how well you can grapple. I don't care if you're Nicky Rod and you're placing at ADCC. You should still be this rank in jiu-jitsu, you see, because it's not relative to skill. And then brown, and then black, you know. And so when they're asking the right questions, it says something about their understanding of grappling. And it's not just jiu-jitsu, it's all of grappling. And when that happens, now we can find a way to place those belts. And instead of there being a test or being some kind of curriculum or some kind of thing like that, we can base their level, their belt level, off of requisite knowledge as opposed to, hey, man, that guy grapples really good. So now that 65-year-old dude that's a brown belt that gave up on getting a black belt because he can't train super hard anymore and thinks he should be tapping young black belts to get his black belt can get his black belt, but he has to do it through this avenue. As well as the 18-year-old kid that murders 35-year-old black belts every weekend at the local open mat is not getting a black belt tomorrow because he doesn't understand anything about that. It's the separation. It's the reason a guy like John Danaher can be a coach without ever competing with people and th things like that. You know what I mean? There's a separation there. And I, I think that it's taken me years to flesh that out, but I feel very comfortable. So I think that... The reason it takes people a long time to get a belt at the school is because if they have not been on that sort of track, sometimes they have to go back and answer questions that they should have already had answered. Do you see what I'm saying? Oh, you're a purple belt. Okay, that's great, man. You're not going to get busted down. I'm not going to derank you. Would you like to re-earn your purple belt here or would you like to just earn your brown belt when it's time? Because that's something that people say all the time. I'd rather just get my purple belt here again. Okay, fine, whatever. The people have gi and no gi belts. They do that. John Jock gave Joe Rogan a black belt. Eddie gave Joe Rogan a black belt. You know, Vinny Magalesh, you know, two different black belts. Eddie, two different black So on and so forth. So that's not that uncommon. Now, let's figure out where you are. When I start showing these techniques, do you understand enough about them that when I show a technique, you're asking the appropriate belt-related question? If you don't, then we have to go back. And we have to find all those holes. And we got to start filling those in. And the more we fill those in the closer you'll be to where you need to be. 
And so that's why it takes a long time sometimes. And then it's also an intelligence thing, man. Like not everybody who grapples is a smart person. You know what I mean? Like, just be honest. Not sure. everyone that does anything in life is a smart person. Exactly. Go you know? outside, yeah, and sort of get a gauge of things. Yeah. Go to yeah, the supermarket. You'll kind of see. Yeah, exactly. So it's like you have to be relatively intelligent to understand grappling on a very deep level. Sometimes you're working with somebody who just has a slow path. Sometimes you're working with people who are very hobby-driven, so they're just not dedicating that much mental energy to learning this. They're just like, yeah, I just do it two times a week, and... It's a good workout, and I like learning about it. You know what I mean? I'm a very hobby-driven guitar player. I play guitar for an hour every single day, and I can do some techniques that are very advanced on the guitar, but there's also some very fundamental things I'm very poor at because I'm self-taught, but I also know that, and I also know that I'm doing it very casually. You know, I'm not spending hours every night studying guitar technique. I'm spending one hour. Right. Limited. You're not getting privates from Steve nope. I or something like that? No, yeah. no, no. What do you mean, bro? I thought about it. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah. So it's like, so everyone's journey is different. The belts are not that important. Sometimes it competitively, it becomes like a little bit of an obstacle because like dudes are weird and they'll say things like, oh, I'm not doing a super fight against that blue belt. And it's like, that's fine, man. He'll, you know, you'll fight that guy eventually. But oftentimes what we see, especially in no gi, is that the belts don't matter that much in competition. As long as you're winning, that's what matters. And so we view competition through a lens completely separate from the belts. We view skill and a lens completely separate from the belts. And we view knowledge as a lens to see the belts through. Kolobate, right? I, mm. always, I always bring him up, you know, as sort of my example of these. He was the blue belt that came in that was destroying black belts. And everyone was like, ah, you know, this black belt, he can't be good because he's getting crushed by this blue belt. And then people start whispering, hey, why isn't he a purple belt? Why isn't he a brown <laughs> belt? Why isn't he a black belt? Your thoughts on that type of example? Yeah, so like Kolobate's incredible man like he's obviously a f phenomenal young talent in the sport and he's accomplished some incredible things already and i'm sure like going forward he'll accomplish even more but i think they're doing a beautiful thing with his belts over there i think they're doing great the mendez brothers are just like you know what dude like so what you want adcc trials why do you have to be a black belt you didn't need to be a black belt to get in why do you need to be a black belt let that be separate you'll be a black belt longer than you'll be any other belt just let that time come and enjoy the journey through jiu-jitsu you know what i'm saying now the guys in the ibjjf they compete against them in the gi they're the ones that are pissed off the most and i get that i totally get that because it's like oh here comes little purple belt or a little brown belt <laughs> right. Kolobate, and he's right. just burning dudes and it's like he's one of the best grapplers on the planet right. at an open or something like that come on yeah yeah mm -hmm. i get that but here's the other thing dude he is that belt he is a brown belt. And if you care about being the best purple belt or brown belt in the world, you have to be better than him. And that's the bar. That's the bar. When I was in high school, four people from my graduating class went to the NFL. If I wanted to play football at my high school, do you know how ridiculously high the bar was to play football at my high school? Dude, there was like 10 plus people that went full ride scholarships to D1 colleges to play football. There's no way I could have played football at my high school. No way. Dude, Julio Jones graduated with me. Julio Jones is one of the best wide receivers in NFL history. Graduated from my high school. I can't play on a team with that guy. I'm not that level of athlete. It's like, that was the bar, though. The bar is the bar. The bar isn't going to get moved back for me. The bar is set by that. And so it's up to me to reach the bar. You see what I'm saying? And so I don't pity those guys at all, and I don't really feel bad for them either. Dude, in my day, my competitive prime was eddie cummings bro what, what am i gonna do with eddie cummings i'm gonna go fight eddie cummings and heel hook him that was my game can't heel hook this guy what the hell you know what i'm saying like it's like bro i did the adcc trials as a purple belt eddie cummings was in my division i was just like okay yeah man you know what i mean it's like okay you know but that was the bar 
Do you see what I'm saying? I didn't. I didn't go into ADC Charles, uh, ADCC Charles, thinking to myself like, well, I guess once we get to Eddie, you know, it wasn't that. It was like I'm gonna bring the fire, son. But this is the bar, you know. And it's like if I can beat him, I can beat him. If I can't beat him, I can't beat him. But there's no way I'm gonna be like, bro, why is Eddie Cummings at the trials? You know, Eddie Cummings was at the trials, but in that bracket with me was Ruben Alvarez, Barry Yoshida, Joel Tudor. You know, obviously Eddie Cummings. Uh, like a list of. 80 cc veterans were in that division there's only about 12 of us in that division that's the bar so that's my point i think like let kolabate bro let kolabate go through his jiu-jitsu journey don't short him of his journey because your ego can't take getting beat by a young talent in the sport you know what i mean like let this man live his life you know and and enjoy his journey and be grateful that you get the opportunity to go out there and put your hands on him and have a chance to dethrone that and have a chance to get out there and rise to that opportunity. Because you know what, dude? Think about the boxers that never got to fight the greatest boxers. And their legacy is always tarnished because they never got a shot. And they'll never know if they could have beat the Muhammad Ali's or the Mike Tyson's. You know what I'm saying? They'll never know because they didn't get the shot. And it's like, do you want to be the champion of, of the smallest pile? Or do you want to be the champion of the greatest pile you know what i mean like hey, a lot of sometimes i'm a i'm a plumber and i want to join my jiu-jitsu world league and i don't want to <laughs> run into michael mushimeshi who's doing a tune-up <laughs> a tune-up there you know what i mean yeah. man i want my gold medal i want to go back and brag to my academy you know go to naga <laughs> <laughs> naga gives belts it's cooler than medals anyway you know what i mean like yeah. bro you know like it's just like it's like at the end of the day it's like we can't lower the bar for people the bar is where the bar is at you go where you need to go and you do what you need to do. But we're not lowering the bar. And that's the thing with the belts in the gym. It's like, hey, man, this guy's been a purple belt for eight years. Well, you know what, dude? He sucks at this thing over here. So he's going to have to go learn about that and then get back to me. I had a guy once. I'll tell this story because this will make the belt thing make more sense, too. I had a guy when I first moved to Atlanta. He was very, he was like probably 50-something years old, right? But he, not like a bad 50, like, like a, a good decent 50 and he was probably a little autistic i think um but he's obviously a fully grown man with no one to speak for him so it's not like someone came in and was like oh this is chris he's autistic it was just like i met him he was like six two, six three, probably 250 chubby guy yeah not like you know big ripped up dude but a chubby guy and uh he was a blue belt he's a judo black belt okay and this guy couldn't move so basically his spine was like a two by four Whoa. Okay. So if you said, like, do a sit-up, can't. Can get his head about two inches off the ground. And, ugh, like Dan Henderson. Done. Yeah, the Tin Man. Okay. Pretty rough, dude. Mm-hmm. So he can't grapple at all, really, right? Mm-hmm. And so I come to find out in the couple months that I interact with him that the judo guys that gave him the black belt gave him a black belt that was not IJF recognized. They gave him a black belt sort of as a consolation thing. Okay, so he couldn't actually do judo either. And the blue belt he was given was by the previous gi coach at the gym. And he gave it to him, again, because he felt bad for him. And so my thing is, is you can't train with me and receive anything out of pity. It's never going to happen. I have a blind blue belt that is a, he's a gangster. He's incredible. He competes, he destroys people. He's a blue belt. He's blind. And the reason he trains with us was because he was not looking for a place that was going to give him concessions, right? So same thing for this guy. And I told him straight up, I said, listen, man, here's the deal. You obviously are very limited in your ability to physically grapple. Lucky for you, the belts don't mean much about your physical grappling. And he asked me about a purple belt. Okay. And now, now listen, I know 
remember that he's autistic. So he's like, it's like, okay, I got you, dog. And I told him straight up. I was like, listen, the biggest thing that we do that you have never seen, because he knew a lot about martial arts, this guy, he really did know a lot about martial arts. I was like, listen, man, you don't understand anything about the lower body game at all. The judo guys you trained with didn't pursue it. Okay, they did IJF judo. And the jiu-jitsu guys you trained with didn't pursue it because they did primarily Gracie jiu-jitsu in the gi. So here's the deal. If you want a purple belt, I want you to be able to demonstrate a working knowledge of the lower body game at a very basic level. And I don't expect you to be able to perform it, but what I do expect you to be able to do is if I put two people in a position and I say, all right, man, what's happening? I expect you to be able to tell me in detail what's happening. And if you can do that, I'll give you a purple belt. And not only am I going to do that, I'm going to give you my most senior student who's a phenomenal leg locker and competed at the very highest level of the sport and leg locked people like Cody Steele and these people that no one ever finishes in jiu-jitsu. And he's going to work with you twice a week to catch you up. And it's not going to cost you a penny. And he was like, all right, great. They went about a month. He goes, I think I'm ready to show you everything, right? And I was like, man. So I went to Chase. I was like, Chase, you're a genius. You taught him all this in a month? And Chase was like, no. He doesn't know anything. I was like, oh, okay. He goes, I can't even I can't even teach the guy. You try to teach the guy and he just grunts and, and says weird things and then he doesn't pay attention. I'm like, all right, fine. So I'm like, all right, man, come on. Come show me. Can't show me anything. And so my tactic is almost always the same. If you say something to me that sounds outlandish, I say, great, so show me. And if you can show me, I'm amazed. And if you can't show me, I'm like, that's okay, man. You know, and it's very apparent to both of us that you didn't quite know. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have to be demeaning to you. You can figure it out. So he comes, he can't do anything. I'm like, okay, figured this was going to be the case. No problem. So then, you know, I tell him all that, whatever. And the guy goes, okay, great. No problem. So then I get a call from the owner's wife works our desk. She's like our front desk manager, but she's also like the owner because she's the owner's wife. So, um, and she's like the sweetest woman of all time bro she's like literally like the face of like kindness this woman so she calls me and she says hey this guy he, he's talking about uh canceling his membership and i was like oh okay well uh you know what happened is there anything we can help with you know is it like i mean i'm thinking like maybe life got him or something you know and she's like no it's uh he says that he was promised a purple belt and that you guys are sort of taking that back and i was like oh absolutely not so i explained to her everything you know and so it's like okay and then and he goes on to say crazy, crazy, crazy things. He's very autistic. He goes on to say things like, you know, Chase, Chase is also like one of the most loved people. If you talk to people who know Chase, everyone loves Chase. Chase is the most dishonest person in martial arts and planet this and yada, yada, whatever. And he freaked out and he left and he left because he didn't get his purple belt. I thought to myself that I had done so much to make sure that this guy was going to be able to get his purple belt. Because I would never give a purple belt to like a young guy that could move, who could tell me everything about the lower body but couldn't do any of it i would never give him a purple belt you know what i mean i'm like bro come on come on but i was like i'm making a concession for this guy which i felt bad about right away because i don't normally do that and i was like Fuck. so then right then and there i was like nope and so that was one of the times where i was like really reinforced the way we're doing the belts has made room for people it's answered so many questions that people just don't have answers to how do you get to black belt if you start jiu-jitsu at 45 and you're not physically capable of performing you know like, oh, I, I'm 45 and I was in a car wreck and I have a fused disc in my back and I can't really invert or do anything crazy with my hips. Like, how am I ever going to get a black belt? You can get a black belt. You can get a black belt. Here's how. Now, don't think that this makes you less than because it certainly doesn't. It's just different than what the general idea is that a black belt is a superhero. 
and it takes pressure off the guys in the gym. It helps them to understand things like black belts will come sometimes and train and the blue belts will destroy them and they'll be like, bro, this guy's just a blue belt. What is this? You know what I mean? And it's like, no, man, he's a blue belt that trains full time twice a day, competes his butt off every time he can, lifts weights, eats clean. That's who he is. He's a, he's a full time athlete. You just got beat out of sport by a full-time athlete. You didn't have a jujitsu knowledge comparison with this guy. You physically grappled with him. Like, that's a very different thing. People will say things like, oh, I got in my car and I looked at my black belt and I thought to myself, like, oh, I was worthless. Like, I don't even deserve this black belt. And it's like, yeah, you do. Whoever gave you that black belt gave it to you for a reason. And that belt that you got, it only means whatever it meant between your coach and you when he gave it to you. That's all it means. It doesn't mean that you're the best in the world. It doesn't mean that you're even comparatively good. It just means that you knew enough and you put in enough work and you reached enough short-term goals or whatever the case it was that he believed that you deserved that rank. And you do deserve that rank because the ranks are not comparative in any way at all. The good luck saying that to the gee guys at the IBJJF. They'd be hot. Somebody's sandbagging. <laughs> so, John, I got to ask you about, you know, I typically ask, okay, conversely, then what makes a great instructor? But... In your case, you brought up something very interesting that, that uh, Keith, again, has um, mentioned to me, and I want you to help clarify for me. You seem to differentiate uh, an instructor into, like, three different buckets, I guess. One would be the instructor, the coach, and the mentor. Can you explain to the listeners, viewers, the philosophy, what, what entails specifically within each of those three descriptors? Basically, like, this is through no choice of your own. Okay, like this is not something that you choose. And this was like kind of funny thing we were talking about earlier with like guys who open jujitsu schools and then they become business owners and they kind of like, oh, no, it's like you didn't really know, you know. So when you become a jujitsu instructor, right, or coach or whatever, your guys often they oftentimes say things like, well, you have to be a therapist and you have to be an instructor and you have to be a coach. You don't have to be. But that's what your guys are going to do. They're going to come to you and they're going to ask you like life stuff. And uh, that's just a respect thing, man. Like, uh, you know, like, let's say that you owned a bowling alley and I wanted to become a bowling alley owner. And I was like, man, this guy's a great bowling alley. He's very successful. He knows a ton. I'm going to make this guy my mentor. And you're cool with it. You're like, I'll help you open your own bowling alley, dude. That's sick. It's like across town. It's not a com competition for me. Let's do it. And so you, you, you're going to help me out. There may be times where I'm like, listen, dude could you help me with like this thing that's going on? I've been seeing this girl, you know, like, I don't know what you have a great marriage, man. Like what, what is this thing over here? You know what I'm saying? That just happens with people you respect. It's almost like a big brother thing. And so what ends up happening is we have these students and they want us to teach them jujitsu, which is great. They want us to make sure they get it, which is great. And then they want us to help them. Like they want to be a friend. They, they look at us as like a big brother type person. So then there's that. So you're a mentor, you're a coach, you're an instructor. The instructor's job is just to make sure that they are learning jujitsu, that they're seeing it, they're learning it. You teach them moves, you teach them about the art of jujitsu or grappling or however you want to phrase it. The coach's job is to watch them and make sure that they're getting it, is to put them through the correct drilling and exercises and to watch the rolling and make sure the rolling is correct and, uh, you know, obviously like all the cornering and stuff like that that goes into competition. But that's what the coach does. The coach makes sure that you're getting it. The instructor teaches it to you. The coach makes sure that you get it. And then the mentor is the person that basically helps them sculpt their lives. So 20-year-old kid walks into your gym. He says, hey, dude, I want to be the next Gordon Ryan. And you go, probably not. You go, that's a lot. That's like saying I want to be the next Michael Jordan. But if you want to shoot your shot, 
I got you. Okay. If you if you feel so inclined to take on that burden, okay, because that is a burden, and it is a lot of coaches out there that will just they treat it like catching hundred dollar bills in the rain. You know what I'm saying? They're like, oh, this really talented young guy wants to come be at my school. It's gonna make my school look great. I'll take him in, and then he ends up just being you 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 and all of your other students just end up being cheerleaders for this kid because you can't actually help him get to a real high level in jujitsu. That happens all the time. But and I'm not saying you, but you understand what I'm saying. Like it's people. So. The mentor is the guy that goes, okay, man. He goes, should I go to college or should I pursue jujitsu? That's a real easy question for some people to answer. That's a heavy one for me. I'm like, bro. Okay, so here's the real answer. College is the easier road. I know jujitsu seems like the easier road to you because you don't want to go to college and you love jujitsu. Jujitsu is the harder road. With college, money is almost guaranteed at some point in time if you go for a reasonable major. But jiu-jitsu is like, man, that's uncharted territory, the ways you make money in jiu-jitsu. This is changing year after year. We have new ways of making money. Look at fanatics. Look at all these things that are happening. Jiu-jitsu tournaments for money are a relatively new thing. So it's like this is a rapidly evolving career path for people. And we don't know if it's a bubble or what it is. You know what I'm saying? So it's like it's hard to tell a 20-year-old kid to sink the next 10 years of his life into this thing if you don't know he's going to come out shining on the other side when his other choice is college where he will come out shining on the other side, you know? And so generally, the way that I approach that choice is I look at the way that they train, I look at their personality, and I ask them a few questions about what they want. And that's a mentor's role, right? The mentor's role is to help them guide their life into this goal that they're telling you they want to reach, right? So instructor says, here's an armbar and how it works. Coach says, you need to drill the armbar like this at least a thousand times to really understand it. Let me watch you do that. Oh, your left leg's out of place. Do this. But your right hand's out of place. Do that. That's the coach. The mentor goes, hey, man, you trained really, really hard uh, this week, the last five days. So instead of coming to Q&A tomorrow, I want you to just take a day and rest tomorrow and then rest on Sunday and then come back on Monday fresh. And I want you to, you know, do this. And you're just like helping them sort of guide that thing. You know what I mean? Or the coach says like, hey, man, like you have a tournament in a month. Don't go stay out at the bar all weekend this weekend let's try to rein that in a little bit you know what i mean let's you know i think it's going to be kind of useless for you right now to do that and you you know so the mentor is just doing that thing coach my parents are kicking me out they say i don't have a job and if i don't get a job i'm going to get kicked out well then you need to go get a job how are you going to live on your own without a job it's a job either way so go take the easy road and get a job and stay with your parents what are you talking about It's very easy to do those things if you're an honest person and you actually care about people, but those three hats are very difficult. And if you don't know that they exist and you're in that role, then you're probably muddying the waters somewhere. And all of us are really, all of the people who are praised as jujitsu instructors or coaches or whatever are usually really good at one of them, okay at another one of them. And almost all of us are really bad at at least one of them. So for me, it's like, I can instruct very easy to get in front of people and just say here's how jujitsu works because i've done all the requisite studying and things like that to be able to say it coaching is very easy as well i can watch you do the thing it's very related to instruction it's like do i know enough to coach you right here and do i have enough emotional intelligence to see like how you're reacting to all of it but mentorship is where i am the worst because i haven't lived enough life i don't think to be able to be telling people how to live their lives i've been married for 10 years i've never been divorced i've never gone to jail I've never been addicted to any kind of drugs. I had a very simple upbringing in a very small place. Okay, so I just now I'm living in a very populated area in the last five years of my life. I have traveled. I have done that. I mean, whatever that's worth. You know what I'm saying? But it's like I haven't lived enough life. Brandon was my mentor. Brandon lived a ton of life. He'd seen all kinds of stuff. And it's like 
so great instructor, great coach, very poor mentor. And I think if you look at all the jujitsu coaches around you, you'll find this guy's an incredible mentor. And he's a great coach because that comes from being a mentor. He's very emotionally intelligent. He's a terrible instructor. This guy can't explain anything. And a lot of students will still stay with him. And they love that guy because he's such a great dude. But it's just like if you're a competitor who wants to be competing at the highest level, you're wasting your time. And it's like the same thing happens with me. I have personality conflicts with my students sometimes because it's like I'm not the greatest mentor, man. So when you come in and you say like, listen, bro, like I'm a recovering alcoholic. I don't know what that feels like, man. So I'm just like. Damn, bro, that uh, that's crazy. But Sean, I need I need this guidance from you. I don't have it, brother. You know what I'm saying? It's like you need to go contact a, an actual. You know, I had a, I had a scare once. I had a girl that uh, she actually trained at another school, but she called me and another school owner in our area when I was still in Gulf Shores, and she she had cross trained with all of us, and she told us that she was thinking of committing suicide. Oh man, yeah. And uh, I was like, you need to, I you need to get off the phone with me right now, and you need to call like a suicide hotline like i don't even want to say another word to you and it's not like out of disgust or anything it's just like i'm scared to say any i don't want to say anything what if i say the wrong thing right you know you're not qualified for that yeah no please you know and it's not even like a burden thing where it's like i'm unwilling to shoulder the burden like if i knew what to say i would say it sure but it's just like bro please man and so you unwillingly get pushed into that role Maybe not that role, but but that mentorship role. And uh, I just think, man, like if you're gonna run a jujitsu program, you should for sure look into those those things and how to maximize them, because it will make you better at what you do. You'll find your own skills, your own strengths and weaknesses within that little world of things, and it just makes you a better. You just be better at what you're doing. You know, the more you understand about the things you do, the better you are at them. You know what I mean? Like uh, that's just a relative thing to skill development. So it's just like you know. And these are the things that I've tried. I mean, I'm sure that's where this is coming from from the YouTube channel. But these are things that I've tried to put out into the jujitsu universe. Like, hey guys, like you guys ever thought about this? You know what I mean? Tell me if I'm crazy. Hopefully people can grow from that because martial arts has the power to change people's lives for the better, for the worst. And we hear so many great stories and we hear so many horror stories about coaching and mentorship and things like that. And I think sometimes these guys don't mean to do the things that they do. They just do them because they don't understand any other way. Like they don't understand that mentoring that 15 year old girl when she turns 18 may turn into some kind of infatuation with you. Sure. Sure. You know what I mean? Right. Something unhealthy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And when that happens, they look at her as a grown woman and they say, oh, this is okay. Like, she just loves me. She just, she likes me. She's into me. And it's like, no, she's not. No, she's not. No, she's not at all. She just doesn't know how to process her own feelings. And she's channeling it this way. If you want to do the best thing for her, you'll tell her that. So, Sean, you brought up this Q&A thing a few times throughout the uh, episode. Do you actually have like a Q&A day or something like that or a session or so I, I have a Saturday as a Q&A. So, ah, um, interesting. How does that, what does that look like? If you are starting out to do Q&As with a developed student base, it's pretty ugly. You go and you go like, all right, guys, just ask whatever you want. And it, no one wants to ask anything. Of course. They're just like, oh, I don't want to look dumb. Right. You know what I mean? Or they don't and, know what to uh, ask. Yeah, or they just have no idea, right? Yeah, but you develop a culture. At the end of every one of my classes, when you get done drilling, I make everyone sit in a circle afterwards. And I walk out and I point at every single person and I make them acknowledge that they don't have a question. So I point down the down the circle, pop, 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 pop. And I point at you and you can just give a thumbs up, a head nod or whatever that you don't have a question. 
And then I put pressure on them, honestly, and this is going to sound a little crazy, but I put pressure on them. So then later on, I'll be like, hey, you remember when we drilled that two weeks ago and you said you didn't have a question? I thought you knew that. You don't know that? You don't know that thing, bro? You know what I'm saying? So then I can like put it on them. Yeah, so it's but like, coach, I just wanted to get home or coach, I didn't want to extend the class. These guys just want to get home or... That's awesome, man. But what about that hour you spent drilling it with a question in your mind that you didn't ask that you wasted? What about that time? Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Oh, that was away from your family that you just came here and wasted. Hmm. Could have stayed home and spent time with your family instead of not getting better at jujitsu today. That's something you could say. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of pressure depending on the, the student's goals, right? So if they're like competitive and they want to be really good, I'm like, I'll pour it on. I just pour it on, dude. Like you get the whole gallon bucket of pressure. You get the whole thing. But like, what do you mean? And if you're super casual, I'm just like, nah, man, I got you, bro. You probably just, you know, whatever. But it's like they have that culture in the gym where it's like, ask questions, ask questions. If you're not getting it right, you're going to lose a tournament because you didn't know this thing. And everyone's going to talk trash to you when you come back because they're going to go, bro. And so it's like a thing where they all want to ask. And they'll oftentimes ask each other's questions because, you know, and then in the more experienced students will ask the newer students, like, hey, do you have a question? Like, and they'll ask, like, if they, although you don't want to ask, okay, cool. And then they'll ask the question. You know what I mean? It's like, and it's like, see, it wasn't a dumb question. You could have asked it yourself. And like, you just, you just have a culture of asking questions. Like I tell them all, like, if you have a question during class, don't ask the senior students. The senior students are getting ready for tournaments. They're trying to drill. They're not in here to answer your questions. I'm in here to answer your questions. Ask me. I'm the instructor. I taught the move. And they won't even do it. They'll ask the senior students, Chase, what do you do about right this? I don't know. You have to ask Sean. I don't really know. They'll all do it. Like, uh, you know what I mean? And it's like it builds that culture of, you know what? I'm not really sure about this. Let me ask. And like, I think that culture starts with something as small as me going like, Hey, dude, they're like, hey, dude, I'm going through this divorce right now. I don't know what to do. Well, I don't either, bro. I've never gone through a divorce. Something as simple as just like a little piece of honesty between everybody. And so basically, in the class, make everybody ask a question. Oh, okay, you guys don't have any questions. So then when we get to Saturday, it's like, all right, time for Q&A. Everybody that comes to that Q&A that's not new will have a question on Saturday. But it wasn't always that way. It was very difficult. But I sit them in a big circle. And I go, all right, man, where are we at? And they'll go, hey, dude, can you show me what to do whenever a guy's trying to knee slice me and I knee elbow them and they keep the underhook and they circle my head and I go, yep, no problem. Here's what we do. Boop, boop, boop. I demonstrate it. And if they want to, they can take a partner and they can go to the side and they can drill it while we go through the rest of the Q&A. But almost none of them will do that because then they get to hear everybody else's questions. And then even more directly, they get to ask questions about each other's games which becomes hilarious at times because they're literally just asking how to beat each other half the time. Like, oh, Kevin always does this guard pass to me. How do I stop it? Well, here's how you stop it. And then Kevin's like, all right, well, when he does that, what do I do to him after that? Like, oh, we go do this thing. You see what I'm saying? So it's like, that's how our Q&A works on a Saturday. And it's a beautiful thing, man. And it gives me a chance to basically give them all a free private lesson. And uh, I generally don't do private lessons with my own students. I don't have time to do that. So I don't do that. Do you develop a instructors teachers it doesn't sound like it because it sounds like you have so many competitors that you're correct me if i'm wrong but you're solely focused really on that so that is the ongoing study so like it's like all right look i'm teaching you guys how to study so for those of you that want to become instructors i expect you guys to watch what i'm doing and learn from that and they do so chase and ryan those guys travel and they do seminars and guys will come back and they'll be like man Chase taught this amazing seminar, like one of the best seminars I've ever been to. And then I asked Chase, like, hey, what'd you show? And he's like, oh, I showed them the Outside Hillock seminar that you taught like five years ago at this school. I'm like, oh, dope. And it's like he was mimicking, but he wasn't mimicking for the sake of mimicking because he thought he didn't have anything to say. He was mimicking because he was trying to learn 
what it was like to do this thing the same way that when you if you ever have to do like any kind of sales on like the phone or anything you'll get a script and they'll say just say these things and you say them and you're like oh i see why i'm saying these things and then you build your own thing after that right and so it's like the same thing they're learning all these little teaching tactics and teaching tools that i'm using and they're learning them for themselves and occasionally they'll ask me they'll just be like hey man why did you say it this way why do you do this way and it's like okay here's why and so they're by osmosis becoming good teachers and uh i used to wonder the same thing and then uh honestly like just from watching like the way that like gordon and those guys are i was like oh well this works this is what Danaher did he didn't teach them to be teachers he just taught them and they just mimic him and then they're good teachers because he was a good teacher and so it's like cool as long as i set a good example they'll be good at it and it's generally worked honestly final sort of thought here on sort of the different phases of jujitsu, right? We were at a point where you were doing a lot of learning through books, you know, and magazines. And then I've gone through these example VHS tapes, you know, um, CD-ROMs, for God's sake, you know, DVDs. Even Fanatics is feeling a little bit long in the tooth because you're seeing things like um, online, like, you know, AOJ+. Plus. I could go on and on. Lachlan's advances in teaching and instruction and coaching methodologies and physical therapy and physical training, et cetera, et cetera. We're seeing these outstanding athletes at a younger and younger age. What does it look like to you? Yeah, it just looks to me like jujitsu is evolving. And one of the things that's very beautiful about jujitsu is just how young it is. You know what I mean? And and, and people just generally don't, until you've been in jujitsu for about a decade, it's very hard to grasp how young jujitsu is. In just the amount of time that I've been involved in jujitsu, I watched jujitsu go from this sort of gi dominated IBJJF, like all amateur, zero professional sport into now a very serious professional sport that seems very uh i don't want to say that it was gi dominated and now it's no gi dominant like i don't want to say that but it's like no gi is much more prominent than it was we'll put it that way so as to be very soft on the gi hearts out there because that's a controversial thing to say brother let me tell you especially come from a 10th planet guy sure yeah before i get even that even 10th planet was such a stigma for yeah man yeah. way stigma back in the day i used to get hate dude i used to get hated on for I nothing oh he's a 10th planet guy those guys eddie oh eddie bravo haha what are, it's like nah man like eddie's a phenomenal human being he's incredible i would have never stuck with 10th planet if he wasn't i see a very young sport and i see you know i've tried to develop myself as a coach and things like that i look at other sports like wrestling and it's like man we have so much room to grow we have so far to go as a sport like what I'm doing when I coach my guys, when I'm there and I'm calm and I'm doing these things and people are like, oh, this is remarkable. I don't really think it is. I think it's remarkable in the jujitsu space. It's not remarkable in the sport space. There are way better coaches than me in the other sports, way better coaches than me in other sports. They understand their sports and their athletes and things way better than I understand mine. And that's because they've had decades and decades and decades to refine that sport. Jiu-jitsu is still like, we can't even agree on what rule set is the best competitive rule set. We can't even figure that part out. So it's like, it's a beautiful thing. It's the Wild West. You never know one year to the next what's going to be going on in jiu-jitsu. You know, a few years ago, EBI was the big new thing. Now ADCC is becoming the big new thing, even though it was always a big thing. The IBJJF is sort of leaning back into their niche and being like, we're the big gi tournament, you know, and they're not trying to like say the things that they were saying a few years ago. And uh, accountability is at an all-time high in jiu-jitsu. It used to be that these guys could treat the athletes any way they wanted and get away with it. And now you get exposed real quick because we're in the day of social media we live in the age of the social media that's a problem you know mark zuckerberg's doing jujitsu you got a huge problem over there you mistreat mark zuckerberg at your tournament what you're gonna do 
the way I see it is jujitsu is a baby, baby sport. As a martial art, it's not so much, but as a as a sport, it's 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 an infantile state, and it's up to us as its caretakers to make sure that it matures in a very good and uh, sort of wholesome way. And I think that if people put the sport first, as long as people don't try to squeeze the sport too much, then we'll see a lot of really positive growth. When people try to put a, a squeeze on the sport and, and squeeze their little nickels and dimes out of it and try to get their little, you know, like the Gracie, like Brazilian jiu-jitsu is Gracie jiu-jitsu and everyone that does it doesn't do real jiu-jitsu thing. It's like, bro, that's why you guys don't mean anything to anyone now. You know what I'm saying? It's like you guys like in 19... 19- well, like I always say, man, you know, it's a different product. You know what I mean? Right. You can have, you know, this this food chain or that food chain or that food chain it's up to you man yeah and you and you will and you'll do that to yourself but the thing is right is like think about jiu-jitsu in the united states man jiu-jitsu in brazil and jiu-jitsu in the united states jiu-jitsu in the united states is train wherever you want cross train with this guy cross cross train with that guy let's have fun you can't tell people where they can and can't train because they pay you for a service yada 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 jiu-jitsu in brazil is not that it's not that so it's like jiu-jitsu coming to america was so good for jiu-jitsu as the caretakers of jiu-jitsu we should be trying to push jiu-jitsu into every country in the world we want everybody to put their twist on it it's just like guys who fear competition we don't want to have another mechanics shop in town yes you do you want their shop to be across the street actually because when their shop is across the street it makes you a better business owner it makes you a better person a better everything because now if you screw up there's a penalty okay not only that but it drives up the potential for business for both of you because now there's two shops, which means twice as much marketing. Like when a new gym opens up near me within 10 miles of me, it's one of the most amazing things you could you could ever say to me. Because now I know there's a guy in my area that's going to expose so many new people to jujitsu that just never heard of what jujitsu was. And then at some point in time, if they're the right person, they're going to look up jujitsu schools and they're going to see my school and they're going to go, man, that might be a better fit for me. And they're going to come to my school. And the way that they're going to have heard about my school is because they went to that other school. And that other school spent however much money marketing jujitsu, And they just didn't know what jujitsu was. And that's the only reason they weren't at my school to begin with was they just didn't know what jujitsu was. So a rising tide raises all ships. There's enough room for everybody. Jiu-Jitsu is a community. There's so few of us. We, don't, we can't be at each other's throats. You know what I'm saying? Because what is this? Is it jujitsu versus jujitsu, or is it jujitsu versus everybody else? So anyway, jujitsu is a baby. It's beautiful. The sport is amazing. I'm so happy to be on the ride, dude. And uh, <laughs> I'm just I'm just grateful for all of it. You're dude, over honestly. there with your leather helmet on, right? Jujitsu in the leather helmet stage. Dude, honestly, <laughs> uh, yeah, man. They're gonna look back on times like now, and we're gonna go like, man, jujitsu was so different. Or maybe like back the then. '60s when they had one bar on the helmet, you know what I mean? Or yeah, something. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was so different back then. Look or at no it bars. now, holy cow! <laughs> Can you talk about like your content that you're creating, your Instagram? So basically, like the goal with the social media and all that stuff is just to promote the school, just to promote us and our guys. And my goal was like to get my guys competing. You know, they want to compete at a very high level. So initially, it started out as these shows only want you on the show if if you're somebody that's going to draw eyes to the sport. And so it's like, all right, well, now we live in the day of social media. You guys can't just get by on saying, well, I'm pretty tough. You have to be pretty tough and people have to know who you are. So it's very content driven. So my goal was to build a platform to promote my own guys on. 
So I promote my guys on it. You know, at first it was me. This will get me into tournaments. Then it was my guys. And so now that's still my goal is to get my guys out there some notoriety and get them on to the stages that it takes having notoriety to get onto. If you were to pull up my personal Instagram, TrappleGate10P, what you would see is mostly collaborated reels where it's just my guys posting content and me collaborating with them to push it to my followers so everyone sees my guys stuff. That's the point of it. The point of the YouTube page, the Tempe ATL YouTube page, was simply for me to start putting out ideas into the community that I think were valuable. I, I love them. Please keep them coming. I think they're fantastic. I love the yeah. Coach's Corner. I mean, that stuff is fantastic. Yeah, I need to, uh, honestly, I need to do that more. But those are conversation starters. That's what those videos are for. Those are videos so that people can can really have deep conversations about what's important in our sport. Like, imagine, like, you, you see that video about coaching, the coach, the mentor, and the instructor. And it's like, man, I never thought about having to wear three hats while I'm teaching these classes. Let me try and get better at this. And it's like, you have a conversation right then and there. And it's like, man. And you know who really benefit? I mean, you benefit from it. Well, who really benefits from it is it's students. And maybe some guy understands more about what he's going through or what the people around them are going through. Anyway, that those are conversation starters. And those are sort of my contributions to the sport. My biggest goal in all of jujitsu is to change the sport in a good direction. I will not invent a move, not have some move named after me. I don't really care about that. I want to do something or say something or show something to someone that's going to change the way we do things in the sport. And I don't really care necessarily if people recognize me for it, as long as I can look back at it and go, yeah, man, I saw a problem there. I came up with a solution and the sport benefited from it. That's what I want when it's all said and done. More stuff from you. I think you got a lot to offer the community and uh, I think everyone's really hungry for it too. Also, um, everyone should probably look out for your BJJ Fanatics offering. Speaking of uh, exploring outside heel hooks, can you just give us an overview, uh, the viewer listener out there, um, what what it is? So yeah, my BJJ Fanatics DVD, I only have one and uh, that's on purpose. When they approached me, I was asked to do a heel hook DVD. You want to do a leg lock DVD? And I was like, sure, no problem. And at that time was when I heard a lot of people talking about the outside heel hook not being a very solid movement and, the, you know, whatever. And I was like, okay, great. So here's what I'm going to do. People are saying that this is a problem for them. I'm going to take three months and I'm going to write out the best intro to outside heel hooks material that I can. It's not going to be the encyclopedia. It's not going to be every single outside heel hook iteration that's ever existed in every position and every possible outcome. It's just simply going to be the principles, the concepts, and the applications that create a strong, fundamental outside heel hook game. And I want it to be timeless. I want it to be something that will always be applicable to jujitsu. So it doesn't have a bunch of setups. It doesn't have a bunch of specific situational scenario driven things. What it has is a very foundational approach to the outside heel hook. And I'm very proud of it. I think it turned out very well. The feedback has been insane. It's been selling for like two years or something like that. It just sells every month. It, you know, it's, but with that being said, I wanted people to watch it and say two things. Number one, holy cow, there are things about the outside heel hook that I just didn't even no. And then the other thing that I wanted people to say was this was one of the most well put together instructionals I've ever watched. So that was what I wanted them to say when I put it out. Now, over time, some, you know, great instructionals are coming out. People are getting better and better at putting them out. It may not always be that great or outstanding by comparison. But in 15 years from now, I want someone to be able to watch that DVD and go, 
Okay. Yeah, I feel like I get the outside heel look now, and it'd still be applicable. Ryan Hall had some DVDs when I was coming up that are timeless. His triangle DVD is timeless. Danner has a triangle DVD that's like the discount Ryan Hall triangle DVD. You know what I'm saying? It's like Danner's incredible. But you, there's, you couldn't say anything that Ryan Hall didn't say. He said it all. He said it all. You could show a bunch of setups. You could show some interesting things. But Ryan Hall said it all, dude. He gave you exactly what you needed to excel at triangles. And that's what I wanted to do with outside heel hooks. And that's what I think I, I don't know. You know, it's a bit presumptuous for myself. But I'll say that I achieved it with that DVD. And uh, anyone out there that's interested, please check it out. And if you love it, message me on Instagram. If you hate it, message me on Instagram. Just let me know what you think. I'm open to hear everything. I'm a very data-driven person. So if it sucks, I want to know. One thing I want to clarify is trying to figure out where you're the head instructor at 10th Planet Atlanta now, but it's inside of another academy called Striker Fight Center. Can you clarify that for me? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what's going on. So basically, you know, I had a friend that ran a tournament in Atlanta, tournament series in Atlanta. He's a great guy, great for the community, always trying to build the community. And he just uh, really believed in what we were doing. So we were traveling up to Atlanta to compete in his tournaments a lot. And he just really believed in what we were doing. And he was on me for years about how do I bring 10th Planet to Atlanta? And I was like, well, you kind of can't. Like uh, a black belt has to want to move there. And then I saw that guy in Miami. We were doing some things in Miami and I was there and, and we had dinner. And he was just like, bro, what do I got to do to bring you to Atlanta? And I was like, listen, I've been to Atlanta. I live on an island, dude. Like, there's no way you're getting me to move to Atlanta. Dude, no, no, dude, no. So so then, you know, we're having that conversation. And he's just like, I bet you I can. You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, I don't think so. So I just set this unrealistic thing for him. I'm like, you have to pay me this much money a year. You have to move me and my senior students there. My wife needs a job. I need a house. I got to have furniture, bro. You're starting my life over. You know what I'm saying? And he was like, cool. A week later, calls me. I got you. You're, you're good to go. And I was like, there's just no way. And then I told my guys, I was like, guys, listen, I screwed up. And they're like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, I set a ceiling I thought was unreachable for this guy. And he reached that ceiling. So it, we'd be dumb not to take this offer. And they were all like, well, we all agree. And uh, so we took the offer, man. And, and we moved to Atlanta. And the thing was, is he was buying into a gym here called Striker Fight Center. And Striker Fight Center is an incredible, extremely unique place. It's one of the most unique martial arts facilities I've ever been in in my life. In my experience, martial arts facilities come in three boxes. You have the, I don't want a real job box where the guy goes, I just don't want a real job. I just want to do martial arts. So he opens a failing business and he just tries to push it and it either works out for him or it doesn't. You have the, I'm getting into this to make money box. So that's where like, I think a lot of the like traditional, like Americanized, like karate schools and stuff are at, like they, they have their systems refined. They have all their business stuff refined. They're like cranking it out. They got hundreds of kids, hundreds of whatever. And then you have like the we're going to be like world champion gyms where they're just like only focused on competitors, whether it be MMA gyms or their jujitsu gyms or whatever they are. It's mostly MMA gyms that you see fall into that category where they're like, we train fighters here, but their gym is tiny. They don't have many members, but they have a bunch of fighters there. So usually those three are the, the packages you get. And then, you know, there are a bunch of gyms that fall in between a couple of those. It Like it started out as this and now it's this, or we, we had to add a cardio kickboxing class because the gym was going under, you know, things like that. But for the most part, it falls into that. Striker Fight Center created its own box. This guy, Stephen Broman, that owns it, basically had such a passion for the martial arts he was involved in. And he's been involved in a ton of stuff. Kali, Muay Thai, 
MMA, boxing, jiu-jitsu, judo. He's done everything. Had such a passion for the martial arts he was involved in that he wanted to build a space to train people with that passion, which would be one of the normal boxes that you would put it in. It's a passion project. You know, you get it. But then he basically was just like, I'm going to find a bunch of other people that just want to pursue their passion. And I'm going to pack them all into one building. And we're going to build a gym that has programs that are completely separate from each other. They're not under one sort of unified, like, here's everyone's goal together and we need to make this thing happen. I just want a room full of people that are super passionate about what they do. And we're going to facilitate this at whatever cost. And what he ended up with was a bunch of coaches that are, I mean, I use this term very loosely, experts within their field, teaching completely separate from one another. And it's just like one of the most amazing. I've been in so many MMA gyms that have boxing coaches, jiu-jitsu coaches, wrestling coaches. And the coaches have either like a weird relationship or maybe this coach and that coach don't vibe or maybe, they, you know, what? but they all have to come together for one thing. That doesn't happen at Striker. Everyone is cool with each other, but it feels like we're all just running different gyms. I've seen some of your competitions and you're a great jiu-jitsu athlete. But it seems like your love of coaching, it seems, or whatever you want to call that term, seems to to permeate in the content, at least that that I'm getting from you know YouTube and and Instagram and what I've heard from other people. It seems like it's the highest sort of or a high priority in your life. Can you talk about the the two sort of dynamics of like, you know, competitor Sean and coach Sean? Man, when I opened my school. Like in Gulf Shores, I was a competitor because I I thought that was the only way to get better. I was a coach because I had to teach classes. I mean, I have a gym and I was running a business, which I was terrible at because I had never done that before. And so uh, they don't tell you that part, by the way, when you start training, they're like, oh, yeah, you'll open a gym one day. They don't tell you. You should probably also know what you're doing in business wise because you're going to run a business. But so I was like, yeah, you know, I'll do all this stuff. Then when I moved to Atlanta, you know, we're inside Striker Fight Center, so I'm not in charge of the administrative anymore. So I was like, ooh, I can just compete and coach. So instead of being 33-33-33, I can be 50-50. This is going to be great. And then what ended up happening in Atlanta, since we had such a large jiu-jitsu community here, we showed up. My senior students and I basically were just like, hey, whoever you are in Atlanta, we'll take matches. We're ready to take matches. We're ready to show you guys what we're about and what we bring to the table so that there's mutual respect in Atlanta. And then we want to take Atlanta jiu-jitsu to the next level. We want people to think that Atlanta is the kind of place like Austin currently or Los Angeles or New York or somewhere like that, you know? Because there's a lot of really talented jiu-jitsu people that live here, some amazing people. So I was like, yeah, man, you know, we'll fight everyone. We don't care. What ended up happening was all, I don't want to say all, but like a large percentage of the really serious Nogi competitive players in Atlanta started training with us because they were like, bro, you guys are the guy, Nogi guys. Because in Atlanta, it's very old school mindsets, a lot of gi. A lot of coaches telling their students, like still saying things like you should train in the gi if you want to compete Nogi and things like that, which is like some training's better than no training, but we can do better. So that's where I started to accumulate all these people. And before I knew it, instead of having like five dudes that trained full time and competed at a high level, I had about 20. And they were like, you know, obviously they're not all going to compete on the same shows. That's not how invitationals work. It's not Naga. You can't have 25 competitors. So it's like, I'm in this place this weekend, this place the next weekend, this place the next weekend. It's like, bro, I, how can I compete when we train hard all week, two a days, and then you guys get to Friday and you're like, cool, I can go to Q&A on Saturday and Sunday I get to chill. I'm on a plane to go fly across the country somewhere, lose a bunch of sleep and everything else. And then I come back Monday, I'm exhausted and they're all ready to go again, you know? And I was like, how can I do this as a competitor? This doesn't make any sense for me, you know? So 
I made the decision like maybe two years ago. I was like, I'm just going to step down as a competitor unless something truly interesting comes across the table. And I'm just going to focus on my guys. So instead of 50-50, I'm going to go 100% because I got all these young guys that have huge futures ahead of them in the sport in here with me. And I just am either going to have to tell them to go somewhere else because I don't have enough room or I'm going to have to double down and do the thing that I promised them when I told them I could help them reach their goals. So that was something you really wanted to do then, right? I mean, that that pull to compete obviously didn't override the pull to coach, right? Yeah, I wanted to compete more than I wanted to coach. I just felt hmm. like a scumbag because... So it was kind of guilt or something, in a way. Yeah. Yeah, guilt is, yeah, guilt's a very strong word, you know, mm -hmm. that almost puts some responsibility. Obligation, you can call it yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah, it almost puts some responsibility onto them. It wasn't their fault. I'm the one that sure. chose to facilitate them. I just... I just, my thing is like, I didn't have that. I didn't have like a coach every day. And I know how far I went as a competitor. And I think to myself, like, man, how much further can these guys go if they have that? And they're looking at me to be that thing. And it's very selfish of me to, and knowing that I can't give it 100%. So knowing that like, I won't be the best competitor I can be if I'm coaching and doing this while I compete. It's very selfish of me to basically just be like, all right, man, you guys take the back seat. Uh, one of my black belts came from Alliance headquarters. He had like Leo Noguera and those guys, you know, he had those guys as coaches that were active world-class competitors that didn't go to tournaments with them because they had to train and get ready for their own tournaments and things like that. They were leaving that behind because they were looking for the more modern like coaching approach. And just like everything in jujitsu, everything's still evolving, man. Like coaching is evolving in jujitsu. The way we run our business is evolving. The actual jujitsu is evolving. So they wanted that thing. And I told them that they could have that thing if they came here. And I, it was not within my own moral compass to withhold that from them, I don't think. So I don't want to say guilt is an interesting word, but also I will say I just felt obligated, right? Like I felt like I owed it to them because they believed enough in me to show up and do that. And so I just reciprocated that. So yeah, it wasn't that coaching meant more to me, but it does mean more to me now. So if everyone everyone wants to get a hold of you and everything you're up to, you've kind of recapped it, but how do they do that? Uh, call me. Here's my phone number. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, you guys can message me on Instagram, Trapplegate 10P. You guys can message me on Facebook. You can't add me on Facebook. So my Facebook is max. The friends list is capped. They don't change that. So there's nothing I can do with that. So if you can't add me, you can't add me. Just follow me on Instagram. Um, if you want to message me, you can message me there. I try to respond to everyone. It's a bit much sometimes to get through everything and do all the things that I do. But if I can, I will. The only thing I ask is just don't hit me up and ask for a bunch of videos of things. Because like it's very difficult to go to the gym and film a bunch of videos for everybody Come all the time. Come on, film you know? a bunch of stuff, would you? Jeez. <laughs> it's very hard, dude. It's like, and it's also free. Let me I tell know. you, it's, they're like, I can know, I get a video of this? Free. We want free stuff, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel that. But yeah, that's the best way to get in contact with me. Message me on Instagram or Facebook. Awesome. All right, everyone. I am Adolfo Ferrando, your host. This is Forever White Belt. Thank you so much for your time. Consider, you know, subscribing, the thumbs up, the nice reviews, and becoming a VIP member. We really appreciate it. And um, Sean, you've been so generous with your time. Thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I hope we can do it again in the future. Definitely, man. Thank you for everything, brother. Had a, had a blast. Awesome. See you guys.